Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Brown University pre-college programs, where high school students can prepare for college success, experience college life, and make new friends from around the world. More than 300 courses are available. Precollege.brown.edu. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, Globe editor Brian McGrory will kick things off. We'll get his take on a do-nothing Washington, covering Trump after Trump, and the Globe's Right to Forget initiative. The legislature announced this week they reached an agreement on landmark police reform legislation. The compromise bill creates a framework for certifying police officers and bans chokeholds, but lacks any substantial change to qualified immunity, which shields police from personal liability. Does the bill meet the American Civil Liberties Union standards? Mass ACLU Executive Director Carol Rose will discuss ahead on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Marjorie Egan, you're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Good morning, Jim. Welcome back, Marjorie. We missed Thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, my assumption is what you did is you were counting, calculating the minutes until January 20th. Is that what you're doing? <laughs> How many minutes do you know? How many seconds well, left? I'm, I'm less concerned about um, that, that Joe Biden will become the president <laughs> January 20th. I'm feeling That's a little good. better about that, He Jim. wins again like every day. <laughs> In any case, joining us online to go over the latest national and local headlines, the latter of which includes something he spotted years before it was a full-blown movement, yimbyism. We'll explain that a little later, is Boston Globe editor Brian McGurry. Hey there, Brian. Hello there, Jim. How are you? Hey, Marjorie. How are you? We're hey, good. Thanks. great to talk to you, Brian McGurry. So I just wondered, Brian, um, I just mentioned that I was a little bit more uh, 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 less concerned, I should say, about who's going to be the president on January 20th, given these recent certification of votes, et cetera, uh, from around the country. But I wonder what you thought of this bizarre election and then this bizarre aftermath of the election with uh, with all these court fights and Rudy Giuliani and Trump insisting he's won, you know, fraud and all that. What do you make of it? Well, I mean, isn't it sort of... Um and I hate to use sports cliches, but isn't it sort of par for the course of everything we've seen so far? Uh, I, in fact, you can make a reasonable argument that the aftermath has not been um, quite as bad as what we might mm-hmm. have seen. I mean, if you went into this election fearing unrest in the streets and you'll recall the president telling this group, the Proud Boys, to what, stand back and stand, stand by, by or yeah. something right. like that, uh, uh, then you might have feared that, um, you know, we we're going to have some real problems on uh, uh, city streets and all that. We haven't seen that. We've actually seen our major institutions hold. The courts have been impeccable. Um, you know, Joe Biden has done exactly what he should and needs to do. And the only, you know, obviously besides Trump and the White House, you can have legitimate criticism of a lot of Republicans who have sat by silently, uh, but there are probably political reasons why they're doing that. You know, I have to say, I love your attitude because when you're able to say, hey, an attempted coup is not really that bad (laughs) by the president of the United States, that is the kind of forward-thinking attitude. You know, how long were you in Washington for the Globe, uh, Brian? 
Uh, I was down there for three years for the Globe coverage. Okay, so not just the three years, but observing from afar. Have you ever encountered an issue that more demanded attention than a relief bill that has been responded to as poorly as this? Have you ever seen anything like the fact, what was it, March? I think it was signed in early April by this president. They're now home for Thanksgiving or whatever the hell it is. Have you ever seen anything like this in your life? I, I'm so glad you brought this up, Jim, because we, we talk about this constantly at the Globe. If you go back to March, April, May, Every day was dominated by a discussion of a uh, federal stimulus package, mm-hmm. a relief package. You know, we had the $1,200 checks to going to people. We had uh, uh, the PPP program. We had all of that. And now that has completely gone away. And there is huge human suffering out there uh, at the family level, at the business level, at virtually every level. And it's just slid under the radar of American politics and Late 2020, it's utterly inexcusable. There is a dire need, and we are not paying enough attention to it. We're not really paying any attention to it in uh, the halls of Congress or the White House. And because of one guy, by the way, I mean, one might argue that the most powerful person in America is not Donald Trump, even pre-November 3rd, but maybe Mitch McConnell, who essentially controls the whole Washington agenda. He doesn't want to help people, so people don't get help that is just and of course the republicans allow their leader to do that but i'm with you it is as gross and crass a story as we've encountered in ages we're talking to brian mcgory editor of the boston globe so what do you do brian january 20th comes and trump is gone at least as president uh the assumption is whether it's with the jaws of life or whatever happens i assume you've thought about and probably discussed with your team how do you cover a pro trump post-Trump? It's a, again, Jim, good question. It, Thank it's, you. Look, we, uh, we've never had a presidency like Trump's. We knew that going in. We never had a campaign like Trump's uh, back in 2016. And we had a conversation with editors and reporters at the Globe back then about how we go about covering such an unconventional candidate and not making sure we get the vortex of the outrage of the and we ran him through a more conventional filter back then, doing mm-hmm. some really strong stories on, you know, his control of an airline, the Trump shuttle, and uh, his college days and all of that. You know, his presidency was something entirely apart. And now his post-presidency is going to be something that we've never seen in American politics. So I don't have an easy answer for you yet. We're, we, you know, a lot of people are thinking about this. The key, again, is uh, we'll probably take our cues a little bit from how the Republican Party handles him. If he comes out of the White House and he's a de facto head of the Republican Party, and the likes of Mitch McConnell and others still defer to him, and he still controls the conversation, we may have no choice but to take him somewhat seriously in his ability to move people. But I'm not getting, maybe you guys think differently, I'm not getting the sense that that's necessarily going to happen. I, I... You know, my gut tells me that uh, even the likes of McConnell and maybe even Lindsey Graham just want him out of their lives right now and want to move on into a more conventional, uh, um, you know, more conventional politics in the future. 
Well, you know, Brian McGurry, let me be somewhat crass myself. I mean, the president has called himself the golden goose in terms of ratings, ratings on cable news. And I don't think there's been any question that uh, he's been good for the bottom line of the much-hated media because people have been obsessed with this president. So do you ever worry about that? You know, that that, that <laughs> once he's gone... We should worry about it. Exactly. I do. I worry about it constantly. I mean, it's not very... Um, Nice of me, Principal I guess, because I don't you, like yes. the guy. But I do worry about it. Look, I do worry that we are now a nation uh, addicted to, um, you know, political outrage. And um, it, no question, it's been reasonably good for the bottom line of the globe. Uh, it's certainly good for the bottom line of the Washington Post and the New York Times as well. We've added a boatload of subscribers because people want to read about Donald uh, Trump and what he's doing. Uh, And I do worry that everybody's addicted to this kind of cyclone of news and that it's going to be hard to get off it. And I think Joe Biden's biggest goal is to calm things down, to lower the temperature, to make sure that you don't go to bed anxious and feeling in need of reading the Globe and the New York Times right before you go to sleep. Um, um, So I do I do worry a little bit. But, God, I think we once once we settle into something more normal. Uh, I think there are a lot of other things in life that can, um, you know, bring interest and pleasure. Uh, like what? Uh, beyond uh, like <laughs> playing what? baseball. Baseball. <laughs> sports. Yeah, we'll get back to sports in <laughs> a big way. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, we're also, it's also a hugely busy time on other fronts. We're, we are heading into this incredibly bleak winter. Uh, uh, with the pandemic rising, with the virus rising. Uh, we also, that clashes with the concept of hope that, you know, sooner rather than later, we are going to start seeing the vaccine kick in. And, you know, there's this cross current of emotions that go with a few really, really hard months and then maybe a spring and summer that are going to feel a lot more normal. So there's still a lot going on. It's not like we're going to go from 100 miles an hour to zero miles an hour right away. You know, Brian McGroy, um, um, everyone has been talking about police reform, obviously the Black Lives uh, Matter movement and the protests and George Floyd. And we've got a bill up in Beacon Hill that they've reached some kind of um, uh, agreement on. You know, we don't have the full details. Later in the show, we're talking about uh, New Hampshire hiding the malfeasance of cops from the populace up there. You've done this great series. I think it's called Behind the Shield. You know, just a couple of days ago, a story about Boston police officers accused of crimes, legal troubles tend to just melt away. Evan Allen and Andrew Ryan. Tell people about what, you, what you're doing. Well, we, we realized uh, uh, very clearly after George Floyd and uh, May that, um, uh, you know, we and other institutions, news institutions, need to pay a lot more attention to uh, systemic abuses in police organizations uh, uh, here and elsewhere. Obviously, it had been a huge problem with the state police department to uh, go back several years. Uh, but we decided to continue our look at state police and also look at other departments in there, including Boston police. And um, Evan Allen and Andrew Ryan did an extraordinary story a week ago Sunday looking at uh, systemic problems within Boston police that have allowed far too many officers to avoid prosecution of crimes, to be able to... Uh, step down from their jobs uh, uh, rather than be prosecuted. Uh, We have seen, uh, you know, the lead of the story was a police officer who uh, was apparently driving drunk, who hit somebody, um, had registered a a pretty high alcohol content when he got to the hospital, never prosecuted, uh, um, 
there seemed to be collusion among departments uh, uh, amid uh, that case. And it's, uh, it's um, you know, it, this, this stuff happens just too often. So we are following up on that story. We've got more to come. Uh, we think this is a big issue, and that's why we're seeing the kind of um, compromise bill coming out of the state house that we did last night. But we really so, don't know. But we we don't we know, don't know what, the details. Yeah, I mean, the we fact that, that the legislature's got after they've spent months not doing a damn thing publicly, at least on this, they report something out yesterday, and then within 24 hours, legislators have to vote. And I assume they'll be as confused about the content as we are. All I know about it, frankly is what I read in your newspaper uh, uh, this uh, this morning. But you don't have any greater sense about what, other than the obvious thing, like chokeholds and stuff like You don't really know what the full breadth of content of this proposal is, do you? No, there's a lot more to do there. And look, I really admire the job that uh, Globe State House reporter Matt Stout did getting this on deadline last night. There was a lot of information to process, yeah. and he did it extraordinarily well. I will say, uh, you know, yeah, I agree. It's ridiculous that uh, people are going to get, legislators are going to get the short amount of time that they will to process what's there. But in a compromise package, it has the support of both, you know, Speaker DeLeo and you know, key members of uh, uh, various caucuses on the Hill, uh, uh, Carlos Gonzalez, uh, um, you know, a state senator who has garnered the respect like Sonia Chang-Diaz, who are speaking out in favor of this legislation. That, to me, says that there is possibly some very meaningful things in this package. And so I'm I'm not going into it saying, how are they pulling the wool over our eyes? I'm going into it saying it's an impressive coalition that has put this together. You know, Brian, I wonder how you think we got to this point where, you know, bad cops are not fired or not prosecuted. State cops can steal, keep their jobs. How do we get to this point where, um, I mean, it's ridiculous. You think that's new, Marjorie? A new phenomenon or just more reporting? I, mean, I don't know, because I don't remember what was going on in the 1940s. I mean, I don't know. Were the state cops stealing, uh, lying about overtime How about the, in the Sean 1940s? Ellis case that we're know. talking about so much? How about the cops who testified against him in that case in the 90s? All well, I think, crooked I think, cops, dirty <clears throat> cops. I think, we be, I think we began to know by that time about the crooked cops and the bad cops back in uh, Sean Ellis' case. And, and you know, since then, the, a lot of other things have happened in Boston. But I guess I'm wondering, it is such a – the, the unions have become so ridiculous, uh, the cop unions, in, in, in what they've gotten away with. Is it just that we have politicians that are afraid of them or, or is there something deeper going on? It just seems so crazy that this has gone on like this. I mean, it does seem crazy, but I, you know, I um, can't believe I'm saying this. I, I would agree with Jim that this is not something that is new. Uh, it is, look, the Globe Spotlight team had a really, really strong series a couple of decades ago on Testaline and uh, the lies that police officers told on the stand um, that. Uh, had big impact back then and not enough has changed right now. Um, so I don't know whether it's just as more attention being paid, you know, suddenly in the, the, the summer of unrest of 2020 or what the deal is. I, I, I will say that uh, politicians have seemed more muted about these issues than I might have expected. And I think you can draw, you know, various conclusions why that might be going on. Uh, but perhaps this summer is in, you know, now that we're seeing legislation, now things may begin to change. Can we, have, well, speaking of things uh, change, can we have one moment of, of 
sunlight in the midst of this dark conversation here. Absolutely, You've got another Jim. series going. We had Janae Osterholt on the other day, your culture columnist, who I think is just spectacular. She was on TV with one of the people she wrote about with me last week, too. Tell people what a beautiful resistance is that she's been doing as both a video project and a written project in the paper. Well, I appreciate you bringing this up. I mean, first, Janae is a singular presence. Uh, she has been a really important voice uh, for a couple of years at the Globe, a few years now. And, you know, this summer and this fall in particular, um, uh, she has been a must-read columnist uh, at every level. She has very recently uh, taken up a really innovative project called uh, A Beautiful Resistance, where she is playing out uh, black joy and what it means uh, for black people to live, uh, uh, as they do, full and meaningful lives and how that is in many ways its own form of resistance. And she has taken us all over New England, really. I mean, the first one was at Inkwell uh, uh, on Martha's Vineyard. with uh, from remembering it right and i think i am mercy bell talking about yep. buying a buying a house down there with her brother and after growing up in a position where she wasn't always feeling so secure about where she was living um the second one was with a guy uh, uh named mr anderson in worcester anderson, um, yeah. who uh was what a deputy cultural director for the city and talking about murals around the city um it's just an extraordinary video series. Janae has an amazing presence on camera, and it's combined with her great writing in print. It's really, you ever been really to Worcester? Like, you ever been to Worcester? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, you, don't, you don't remember my column where I was dragged to Worcester by a city councilor after I had some offhanded insult about the city, and he gave me like a five-hour tour of the place that I couldn't get out of. I'll, I'll send it to you, Jim. I wish you would, actually. Okay. I don't think it's in my archive. Now, Brian McGroy, you've been a reporter probably almost as long as me, and um, I have heard since I was a little cub reporter the same complaint. You only report the bad news. You never report the good news. And then you go through the paper and you cite the up, uplifting stories in your own paper or stories that have been written for years. And this, to me, is just one of the truisms of journalism. People don't remember the good story. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from this, um, uh, for what Janae's done. I mean, the Worcester story was great. They were both great. But people don't remember the good news. There's a million good news stories in the paper all the time, and people don't remember them. They remember the bad ones. It's human nature, isn't it, Marjorie? I mean, we always remember somebody who said something negative about us. Exactly. Remember, uh, except for maybe Jim, someone who said something positive about <laughs> us. And, uh, uh, I remember every it's, single one of those. It's, but just, it's just the way we're wired. And, yeah. You know, yeah, you, you couldn't be more right. I've heard this complaint for years and years. But what Janae has done here is a really stunning collection of stories and video and in print. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's really worth the read. You know, speaking of what, what you and Marjorie are talking about, I read a couple of months ago a letter you wrote to your staff in the wake of uh, George Floyd and every other horror that was going on in that front about uh, promoting race and equity, uh, race equity and a whole bunch of related things. And there was something I'd never heard of before, of the right to be forgotten. Uh, what is that and what are you doing with that? So that is, um, uh, I mean, you, you talk about a letter to the staff, like I'm dipping a feather pen into a uh, ink blotter or something like that, <laughs> writing it down on parchment. Uh, I, I sent an email to staff uh, outlining a lot of ideas that we put together as a collective group. And 
One of them was a Right to Forget initiative, uh, which we've sort of renamed a Fresh Start initiative. And that is if the Globe has written something uh, negative about somebody that is, um, um, you know, possibly minor, possibly has been overtaken by time, possibly is really old, but that has followed somebody around and affected the way they live their lives, that's not the role we want to play. We don't want your worst moments to be several keystrokes away from the opportunity for mm. success. So we are um, very shortly going to be uh, reaching out to the public saying that if you want to petition us to de-link something from uh, search engines or, you know, update a story or, you know, whatever mechanism possible, please reach out to us. We're going to put a committee together. We will figure out if this is something we should and could do. And the goal is um, not to say no, but to try to help people. Because again, That's great. you know, Marjorie, years ago, we'd be, you'd write something and it wouldn't be, as you know, several, you know, a few keystrokes away from yeah. being completely accessible to anybody. It yeah. was, you know, stuck in an archive somewhere. You had to go to the Boston Public Library to find it. So we, we want to change that, and we want to be better members of the community. I, think it's, I really think it's a spectacular idea. I can't wait to see how it actually works. So, Brian, Brian, uh, do you, I, I assume, you, do you do a Google alert on yourself so every time your name is mentioned anywhere you get an email like some of us may do? Not, not everybody do you do that? does that, Joe. Excuse me, I'm talking I, I to Brian. I do not. I do, I do, I yes, do you not. Do. You're yeah, lying. I, I, you know I you're can't lying. imagine who would do that. I mean, give me a break. Of course you do it. Okay. Uh, of course. So, yeah, of course. So, alert on Okay, so fine. So what Brian is pretending is that when Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine wrote a great story about the effort in Hingham to uh, integrate the community, it's 99.8% white, uh, 0.2% black. Uh, The point that was made by uh, Michael in his piece is that what Hingham is doing is inviting uh, uh, black families to move there as long as they're wealthy, as long as they can afford a house that is very expensive. That's and right. his cl- closing paragraph, which you, of course, would not know about because you don't have a Google alert, says it, and I'm paraphrasing, it harkens back to those great days of yesteryear when Brian McGrory was a uh, columnist for the Boston Globe and would write an occasional column about Hingham. So what did you write about Hingham <laughs> that stayed with well, Michael Jonas first, for all these first, years, first, Brian? Right. Let me let me say something out, Jim. I don't just read things in which I've been alerted that my name is in it. I actually read the Michael Jonas uh, oh, anyway. uh, newsletter anyway. I don't so know why you do that. I actually came okay. across that. I dropped okay. him a note saying, I appreciate your remembering. Uh, it was classic Hingham. Was that not perfect or what? I mean, well, it was classic Hingham. Well, what did you write that was about classic Hingham? Well, I mean, we don't need to relive the ancient past. Well, let's but, do a little. Uh, let's relive a little. <laughs> Having grown up in neighboring Weymouth, uh, where, you know, oh, no. was a world apart, Absolutely. I would occasionally point out uh, the kind of absurd uh, nimbyism and, um, you know, protestations that would go on in Hingham, especially involving the idea that we're looking to bring such extraordinarily uh, disruptive things as a commuter rail into their town. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so... That played out over a couple of columns over a few years, and uh, why I'm still remembered for it, I don't know. Well, you know, I quickly read, we only have a minute left, I read one of the columns this morning, actually from like 2005 or something, and I couldn't tell if you were joking or not, you were making fun of them, and you were talking about their new motto, and I couldn't tell if this is true or not, discover what Hingham harbors was their motto. (laughs) 
Was that real or was that, that made was, up? That was that was, no, that was their real motto. That's great. That was their new town motto. Yeah. What was that called? Didn't I create a bunch of new slogans for the town? You did. You did. Uh, don't mess with us or we'll sue you or some other kind of... Didn't uh, they have one-way streets? You could only go from Hingham to Weymouth. You couldn't go from Weymouth to Hingham. Wasn't that what they said? They don't want pretty. any of these. What are people from Weymouth? Weymouthites? What do you call people from Weymouth, Brian? Uh, you know? Good people is what I call good them. Good people. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, Brian, it's uh, good to talk to you uh, and reminisce about Hingham, of course, in particular. <laughs> Thanks. It's a beautiful uh, Jim, town. Marjorie, always a pleasure. Thank yeah. you for having me on. Brian, pleasure. thank you very, very much. Brian McGurry is editor of the Boston Globe, and we very much appreciate his joining us. Coming up, Trenny Kuznarek is here to go over the latest sports headlines. Keep your dial on 89.7 GBH, <laughs> Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brody and Marjorie. And Marjorie, I did a little research. I believe yes, they're Jim. called Weymouths, is what I believe is the, <laughs> the residents of Cole Bryan. And Weymouths? Know. Weymouths. I believe that. I believe that is Very correct. attractive. If Bill Belichick did not mumble his way through everything, maybe the Patriots wouldn't have been slapped with a $350,000 fine. He probably told his players to be positive, not to test positive. Cam Newton's coronavirus infection is just one of many examples of how the NFL, at least in my opinion, is managing the pandemic all wrong. Joining us on the line to take on this and other sports headlines is Trenny Kuznera. Trenny's an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston and, of course, a BPR contributor. Hello, Trenny Kuznerik. Good morning, guys. How are you? Very well, thank you. Well, Trenny, before we get to all the bad news about COVID infestation all around the, the uh, locker rooms and football fields in America, let's talk about some good news. Here's some sound uh, from ESPN uh, of the Vanderbilt versus uh, University of Missouri uh, football game. Sarah Fuller, uh, a woman, kicked <laughs> off. Here we go. And the kick down at the 35-yard line, and Sarah Fuller... Happy Thanksgiving. What a day. What a day in college football. Was it ever. Okay. Who's Sarah Fuller that began the second half there? Sarah Fuller uh, is a goaltender on the Vanderbilt SEC Southeastern Conference winning soccer team. Um, Best soccer team in that conference. And because of, like everything else, COVID, um, the Vanderbilt Commodores needed a kicker. Uh, and so they went where they often do was to a soccer team. But this time, rather than going to the men's soccer team and borrowing a player, they uh, decided to go with Sarah Fuller. Um, and of course, guys, this was, you know, this move was greeted with fanfare on some ends. And while this is so great and she was clearly chosen for a reason, she's talented. She's one of the best soccer players uh, at the university. And of course, and it was also met with, um, you know, indignation of how dare a woman Sully the good name of men's sports by, you know, <laughs> suiting up and playing. And she only did a swib kick to kick off the first half, which, by the way, was what the coach called for. And I'm fairly certain that most players should do what the coach tells you to do when you're playing for them. It's just it's but you know what? I, I try not too much to focus on the idiots and the mouth breathers, um, although I'm reading a book that suggests we're all mouth breathers. But anyway, I digress. Oh, really? Um, What's the book? Oh, I yes. should read it. The book is called Breath, and it's, it talks about how, like, over time and over oh. evolution, because oh. of the way that we eat 
and stuff that it has literally changed the formation of our jaw and the roofs of our mouths um, and our nose and how our noses develop. So we all breathe. We should be breathing through our noses, but most of us breathe through our mouths, which then causes all of us to snore and it makes our jaw slack and it causes allergies. So now I'm like hyper-focused on my breathing all the time. Trenny, just as a quick aside, many people in America have spouses who snore they have a fa- fascinating solution in that book that you put uh, surgical you tape know? over your you because it? because I heard a podcast about it. Yes, that you put surgical tape over their mouths and then you stop snoring and then you yes, s- I, stop I, living I, too, right? Well, I, I suggested I suggested this uh, my my a significant other, my boyfriend snores, and I suggested it, and he was like, "You're not taping my mouth shut." So. In- <laughs> So instead, oh, well. there's, just, there's just still a lot of, like, pushing heads to the side. Can we get back oh, to Sarah Fuller for a second here? <laughs> but anyway, yes, yes. This please, is let's. so – This, by the way, I have to say, I read a ton of accounts, and I'm with you, focus on the positive, but there was a lot less negativity from these male former jocks than I expected there to be. That That's a fair – Summary. Oh yeah, I mean, I thought it was great that um, you know the Patriots kicker, our own kicker, Nick Folk said, tweeted out, "Congratulations! Like this is great for the game." So, which made me like him even more after hitting then uh, two big. uh, Our three big kicks, I think, our two big kicks on Sunday. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you know what? Listen. There has to always, it's hardest to be the first, right? There's always the most pressure and you have to be perfect and you have to do everything right. But she embraced it. She wore on the side of her helmet, um, hashtag play like a girl. I love to that. me, yeah. and, you know, we heard from some other, you know, um, and, you know, women this week saying, how many times do we have to say this? that You, you can't be it if you don't see it. And so if a little girl is at home watching that or the da- their dad or their mom shows them that story, she might say, well, I want to play football. And maybe that little girl chooses football instead of soccer or chooses soccer and football. I mean, anything that just gets more people involved in something, I don't understand why that always causes so much consternation. So much like, ah, you know, clutching of the pearls. I can't believe that, you know, we're allowing a a girl to play a man's sport, which all we do, by the way, is make fun of kickers. All they ever hear from, like, football peers are the kickers aren't even real football players anyway, so who cares if she kicks? You know, there were, uh, these are small, and we shouldn't have to celebrate them, but there were some small little great moments. I think the Missouri coach, I think I got this right, before the game, walks over to her and does a fist bump kind of thing. All these little moments yeah. where I'm bet- betting 10 years ago, there would not have been this kind of celebration where there was. I, th- I thought it was just great, and I saw interviews with her. She is fabulous. I mean, the whole thing is just it's a really yeah she's she's well spoken and 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 again it is not easy to be the first at something because when you're the first at something you know she must i don't know how many interviews she did you know this week and this weekend after playing in this football game and having to be i mean imagine being 21 or 22 years old whatever she is and having to be the face of a movement suddenly (laughs) just because you're just because simply you're talented and the football coach said hey man we're down players because of this you know, pandemic and we need your help. Can you help? She was just trying to, it's not like she went begging for a job and, you know, standing outside the, you know, the locker room and saying, you should play me and this isn't fair and this is sexist. Like they asked her to participate. So I don't see why there would ever be anything wrong with that. If the coach thinks, now granted, Vanderbilt stinks. They lost like 41, nothing and they're a terrible team, but 
who cares? Like at the end of the day, like the, the coach was, was like, what, who can I, who's the per the best person for the job? That's what we're always saying, right? Like, did you hear these people always say best person for the job? But then when he picks what he thinks is the best person for the job, well, that person doesn't have the right parts. So now we're mad about it. Well, I'm thrilled. So, uh, Trini, <laughs> yeah, you and I have a bit a of – What's that? Hold on for a second. Buster just emailed Trini to say that his girlfriend keeps recommending holding a pillow over my face to stop <laughs> snoring. I am a bit suspicious. <laughs> That's a good one. Thank I you. mean, the other night it crossed my mind. It, okay, it, it should, it, it's not bad all the time. It's only sometimes, and I try to yeah. gently shove the head to the side. Yeah. The buzzsaw, the buzzsaw can be tough, uh, tough to take. So, so Trini, yes. about a month ago, you and I had a bit of a tiff on the radio about the NFL and their uh, COVID approach, and I think the person who captured. My uh, current position, I think it was Tara Sullivan in the Globe today. I wrote this down, and then, of course, I'm not 100% sure it was her. I think it was. No quarterbacks available on your roster. That, of course, is Denver. Play the game. Two dozen players on the reserve COVID-19 list. I think that's the Ravens. Play the game. No home to go to after your county bans all contact sports. That's the 49ers. Play the game. They don't give a damn about competitive disadvantage. They don't care about anything except getting the damn games on, in my estimation, so they make their money. Is that not the bottom line? No, that is. And we certainly didn't argue about that. I agree with you wholeheartedly. The NFL and college football cares about no one but making money. They don't care about the health and safety of the players. Where where I had a tip with you is that you keep insisting that these players are getting coronavirus from being on the field when it's been traced back time and time and time again. No, but wait, wait, wait. I got to interrupt you. I learned that. I learned that from Rudy Giuliani, even though I have no evidence to prove that point. (laughs) I figure if I assert it, then it'll be perfectly fine. So what, I mean, are they even going to make it through the season? Here's what, and I said this out the top of my show early edition last night. My biggest frustration with the NFL is why is it that every other league had a contingency plan? Mm -hmm. How does the NFL not have a contingency plan? How do they not have built in weeks at the end of, you know, at the end of December or beginning of January where you can push the playoffs back? You can push the suit like, hey, newsflash NFL. Nothing's happening at Raymond James Stadium right now. You can't have large gatherings. So if you can't do the Super Bowl the first weekend in February, do it the third weekend in February or the first weekend in March. You're not exactly competing against a whole bunch of other things that are happening in sports right now because everything is disrupted. But they're so stubborn and they're, they, they're, they are so stuck in their ways that they have to have a 17-week season and they've got to do this and it's got to be in this time frame. I mean, they're, like, they're shoving a game on NBC tomorrow at 3.40, 3.40 p.m. in the afternoon because the on Baltimore Wednesday. Ravens have – on a Wednesday <laughs> because Wednesday. the Ravens have so many coronavirus cases that they keep pushing it back, but they're making them play because, again, you can't – they can't say, well, you know what, let's just play it. Well, we have a week 18. Let's play this one week 18. We'll reschedule it. We'll move it around. Like, it's unbelievable to me. So now the Ravens, who were supposed to play the Steelers on Thursday, on Thursday night football on Thanksgiving on NBC, are now playing at 3.40 in the afternoon on a Wednesday. And do you want to know why it's 3.40 in the afternoon? Because yeah. NBC is like, we're not preempting the Rockefeller tree lighting. Like, that gets us good ratings, too. So too bad if you insist on playing this game. Sure, we'll put it on our air, but we're putting it on after days of our lives. Like, <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> I mean, it's so- just- 
just it's like they can't ever get out of their own way yet people still watch everybody still loves the nfl i watched like a thousand games on sunday well, Trini Kuznarek, on the other hand, they do seem to be fining people for going without masks in their locker room and stuff. I guess the Patriots got a $350,000 like uh, fine yeah. for something and a half a million for the uh, Tampa Bay. Was it the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? Yeah, I mean, yeah. when they're yeah. yeah, when they're not. Yeah, the Buccaneers, the Titans got fined after they had a breakout. I'm sure the, the Ravens will end up getting, I think they haven't determined yet what it is, but I think the Ravens cases are traced back to a coach or a trainer who was in a meeting room and didn't have, you know, masks on. Right. Uh, so there's punishment, but clearly the punishment isn't enough and isn't, isn't enough of a deterrent that these teams are saying, I mean, $350,000 to a team is like $3.50 to you and I. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. not even a contract. Like, it's like, I suppose this year it might mean a little more because they're not making as much money. But it's, I mean, again, it's like everything is sort of window dressing with them. Like, oh, you know, we'll find you. We'll do these terrible things to you if you don't follow the rules. But then nobody follows the rules anyway. They pay the fine and they move on. Like, you know, I'm watching the game on Sunday afternoon. And I can't tell you the number of times again, I saw players without masks. They're supposed to wear masks now at all times when not on the field, even when sitting on the sidelines, how many times did they take a shot of a coach with a mask pulled down? Even when he, when he like was talking, you know, when he was or wasn't talking to somebody players that had him on or had him half on and half off. Like it, 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 clearly they don't care. Clearly they don't, they don't see the need. Like they're, they're not, the punishment isn't enough that makes them say, well, I'm really not going to do this because this is really going to hurt our team. Like, well, I just solution don't is solution is somebody should go over and put tape on their mouths. Don't you think that's exactly. the way? I think the that is the two birds with, Killed two birds with one stone. <laughs> and, and so, by the way, the best, the best story for those who are not sports fans, but I think they'll like this one. And that long litany I did a couple of minutes ago, if you could just tell it briefly, my favorite story, and I think Marjorie's, was Denver. Where they ran oh, out of all four had quarterbacks or something. They hadn't played quarterback since his junior year in college and hauled yeah. out to the field. Yeah, the, the, the Broncos didn't go well. had no quarterbacks on Sunday. All of their quarterbacks <laughs> were in COVID <laughs> protocol because they because they were it's not because they were near someone, right? Like they were like one tested positive and then the rest of them were near him in the in the quarterback room. So then the, all four quarterbacks had to be put on COVID nineteen list. So they pulled this poor kid off the practice squad on Saturday. Isn't that awful? Uh, I think it's Kendall Higgins is his name. Hinton. He threw, Kendall Hinton. <laughs> Hinton. Hinton. Yeah. Yes, I'm sorry that I don't know Kendall Hinton off the practice squad <laughs> of the Denver Broncos, who was a wide receiver at like a second rate university and now is playing quarterback. Actually, Wake Forest. I think he went to Wake Forest. So, but second rate football university. <clears throat> um, you know, has to play quarterback, but like that's Tara's point in her column, which I think I, I did send to you guys, which is this is insanity. You're like the quarterback for all intents and purposes is the most important position on a football field. And you're like, huh, sorry, Broncos, you're not that good anyway, but you have to go out and play in the New Orleans. I think they played the, yeah, they played the Saints and they got crushed. He completed one pass. That's so had sad. Two passes Poor guy. He's going to be traumatized right. forever. But, you know, <laughs> and, but just like even putting him in that position and putting like, Vic Fangio, the coach Terrible. in that position. It's just, it's again, why can't you like, and also you're not making it a fair competition. So now the New Orleans Saints who are in a battle with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, well, they're not really in a battle because the Bucs have kind of stunk lately, but you know, ostensibly those two teams should be in a battle for tops in the NFC South. The Saints and the Packers are one, two in the NFC overall. And that, and, you know, that will determine 
determine home field advantage um, and playoff seedings. So now, the, you know, the Packers have to go out and play a healthy Bears team where the Saints, who they're battling, have to go and play this, like, you know, eighth string quarterback who once did it in Pop Warner. So there's no, comp- like, it takes the competitive balance away. It's just, it's a mess from top to bottom. And of course, it's the, it's the NFL that's screwing it up. Like, of course, they're, and they had the longest time. The thing that kills me, Jim, is they had the longest amount of time of any sports league to figure out what to do. Hey, you know what, Trini, when I read the story about Denver, I, I don't know. I can't be the only one. Does the practice squad on these uh, NFL teams get paid? Yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. They get paid. Well, Not get as paid. much as you would make. Um, gosh, I don't know now. What, what I mean, it's it pretty is. limited. It's, it's pretty it, limited. Little, do they have to work weekends as bartenders? No, they can't work no, as a no, bartender no. They anymore. Make, but... like, they make like, I knew, I mean, this is a long time ago, but like I had a friend who was on a practice squad in like yeah. the early 2000s, and even he made like $130,000 or $140,000 okay. okay. a year. Okay. So they can right. certainly live off it, but they're not making like millions, a half million dollars yeah. or something okay. like that. And they're certainly not making millions, but it's, not a bad gig, not a bad six-figure gig out of college. You know, um, and of- the practice squads were expanded this year to have more players so that, you know, in the event that there were COVID breakouts, you could pull more guys from your practice squad. And as we know, even though we should have mentioned this earlier, eating avocado ice cream guarantees you will never get COVID-19. Thus, Tom Brady, <laughs> well, I'm sure he thinks that. So. <laughs> I'm watching this game. So I can't as a believe- guarantee, though, that you won't throw a bunch of interceptions, yeah, Jim. Me, having said that, let, let me just say, and, and again, I've, I'm not, I don't know why I'm obsessed with how Brady does. I just don't, I really don't even understand it because I got a lot of issues with him. But putting that aside for a second, this game where the greatest quarterback, I think most people would agree, of all time is playing the greatest current quarterback, the guy who may be the greatest ever, eventually, Patrick Mahomes, who is otherworldly great athlete. He's just amazing. You know, okay, he threw a few interceptions. Brady is still 43 years old. They only lost to the best team in football by three points. He is unbelievable. No? Yeah, I mean, yeah, he is. I mean, listen, they, they, they're they not in that game if they're not. For, I know I'm making sort of fun of Tom Brady a little it's bit fine. there. For throwing, but, I mean, he, I, you know, in fairness, he has made uncharacteristic mistakes and forced throws that we haven't seen him make in the past but yes what he's doing is pretty remarkable but i do find it funny that you know he leaves new england because he is tired of his head coach right he doesn't have a great relationship with bill belichick he's tired of bill bossing him around and telling him what he to do and and doesn't like tailor the offense to him he goes to he doesn't like that bill treats him like every other player takes him to task then he goes to tampa and at first it's like you know parades and free jet skis for life um and everything's all hunky-dory and great and now you can just tell like i don't know if you saw the post-game press conference but you know the he walked off after being asked about rob ninkovich his former teammate went on espn and said tampa needs to get rid of bruce arians if they want tom brady in this thing with tom brady to work because bruce arians is like if tom has a bad game arians calls him out you know in public yeah he's the head coach he calls him out in public at a press conference afterwards. It's obvious that Bruce Arians hasn't changed his offensive philosophy to fit the skill set that Tom Brady has. And so Tom Brady isn't playing as well as maybe he could. He's got all these great weapons around him, but the the offense they're employing isn't playing to Brady's strengths. Well, so therefore they're shouldn't they be playing to his strengths? He is, uh, of so course they should, but you've got two big egos. Um, okay. and so 
you I'm know, just kind, sort of chuckling and laughing about kind, it because it's like, well, you wanted something better, Tommy boy. And what do you got? Just another coaching problem. Can we talk about him for one more second? I, I hate to ever say good things about his regimen because it's dictated by this snake oil salesman who is a very dangerous person as far as I'm concerned. A lot of the stuff that, that Brady proselytizes about is also very dangerous. Having said that, when you see him crushed by a 23-year-old, 320-pound lineman, half his age, repeatedly in a game, and he appears to be pretty much fine, it lends some credence to the notion that he's learned how to manipulate his body in such a way yeah. that what other quarterbacks like Garofalo, who was supposed to be his successor, and at least so far, is not, can't survive. He survived. I mean, it's unbelievable. A body that old on a football field has that restorative power. I mean, I am amazed. Even more than what he does during a play is how he reacts to being you know, hit really hard by these huge, fast guys. It's it's really, it's amazing. It, it, I mean, listen, it, it, it is astonishing. Um, he clearly takes unbelievable care of his body. Um, what he puts into it, the massages, the stretching, all of the things uh, that he does. Um, you know, I... I don't know that what he does is all that different no, I, I than what a lot of other people do, but I think that his commitment to it is a different Maybe. level. You know, like all of us can at any age at, at any, you know, financial price point can make sure that we have a foam roller and we're rolling things out every day and we're stretching and we're doing yoga, but how many of us actually commit to doing it yeah. every day? You know, any of us can, try to eat healthy and, you know, do a mainly plant-based. I mean, if we really wanted to, you know, there's a fair amount of us out there that could, could do it, but it's like, Oh, I'd rather have, you know, that Taco Bell. Well, he's got unbelievable discipline, obviously. Unbelievable. You know, the guy's got unbelievable discipline. Yes. I mean, I would like to be able to have just a 10th of that discipline. Think of, think of what we, where we could have gone, Jim, I tell you. Yeah, well, we could have been something. We, we could have, have been a contender. <laughs> so, hey, Trenny, before you go, speaking of coronavirus, and for those who don't know, and I hope they do, you were a star, and I mean, you were great during the last Olympics with curling, working obviously for NBC. Uh, uh, I just read a story in the New York Times about a week ago that I meant to broach with you last time we spoke, and I forgot. Basically, saying despite what's going on in the world, and that athletes and I guess fans from all over the world are going to go to Tokyo and beyond. In the middle of 2021, the Olympics are on. Uh, Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that they're trying to make it happen, right? I mean, the the time that these, I I, I, I think the fan thing, Jim, is is still undetermined. Good. Um, And I think they're trying to figure out what the safest way, I think they want to do what's best for the athletes first and foremost. Uh Like, I don't know. I mean, they're talking about like a fully quarantined athlete's village. And then when you're, you know, usually when your event is finished, you can go and explore Tokyo. You can go explore Japan and other countries mm-hmm. if you want. Now they're looking at ways like normally I would travel if I am lucky enough to go to Japan and work the Olympics, even amongst the pandemic. Like I might have to go 14 days earlier than oh, normal quarantine? quarantine in a oh. hotel room. Yeah. I, I don't know this for sure. I'm just I'm make, you know mm-hmm. guessing based on some of the preliminary things that have slipped out that like maybe you would quarantine in your own home and then you would fly on like a chartered flight over if you're an athlete. Um, and then you would be you would be quarantined essentially in Athletes Village, only being able to go to 
you know, your venue and back. There wouldn't be any like leaving or exploring and there'd be a way to monitor everyone. Um, will it, will you have to maybe show proof of a vaccination to, if you want to be a fan, will they limit fans to Japanese citizens only? Um, you know, I think it's all, I think like everything it's up in the air. They obviously need to figure out something like that sooner rather than later, but I think their sort of timeline on it is late winter, early spring. Once we maybe have a better grasp of how far reaching these vaccines are, how many people we can get vaccinated, um, because, you know, I'm sure you guys like me heard that, you know, heard the doctor on CNN a couple of weeks ago who said we could be relatively back to normal by May. That mm. seems mind boggling to me. Yeah, but so if sure. it, you know, if even if it is May or June or July, if we're even cl- say we're 70 percent back to normal by by May. Well, then there probably is a way. I mean, we've seen it with other sports. You can make it happen with media. We saw the NBA do it. So maybe you just have broad, you know, maybe you just have media and athletes in Japan and you don't and only Japanese fans. Like, I'm sure they're going to try and find a way to make this happen to the best of their ability. Well, if they can do it safely, I hope it happens. Hey, Trini, it's great to talk to you as always. We appreciate it. Thank you very, very much, Trini, as always, for for, uh, being with us. We appreciate it. And I want to tell you both, we're out of time, but I just want to say real quick, I just got an extensive email from Bruce arguing that. Tom Brady is not the greatest quarterback of all time. It is, of course, Joe Montana. He gives me a oh. seven-part series on why that's true. But we are, we are out of time. Trini, thank you <laughs> Trini, so thanks. much. Thanks, guys. Talk soon. You know, Trini jo- oh, go ahead, Marjorie. I'm sorry. I was just going to say uh, Trini joins us every week. She's, of course, an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston. Yes, Jim, I'm sorry. I actually miscalculated the time. We have an extra couple of minutes. Can I just read you something on an unrelated note? And I thought of this. I tweeted this yesterday, retweeted it yesterday, and we talked to Brian about this grotesque abdication of responsibility by Congress in terms of providing relief to the American people. Mm-hmm. Public citizen. It was one of the things that Nader formed uh, ages ago. Listen to this tweet from yesterday. This is the percent of wages currently subsidized by governments due to COVID. You ready? I'm ready. Japan, 100% for small businesses, 80 for large firms. Netherlands, up to 90% uh, subsidized by government. Norway, up to 90. Germany, up to 87. France, up to 84. Italy, 80. United Kingdom, 80. Canada, up to, Canada, up to 75% of wages subsidized by governments due to COVID. The final country on the list, United States, you know what the number is next to us? Yes, I do. It's zero. Zero. <laughs> zero. Zero. The rest yeah. of at least the Western world is providing huge mm-hmm. amounts of necessary life-saving relief to their people. You know, and not only are we doing nothing, they're not even in damn session to discuss what this... You know that, uh, I believe it was in April, Donald Trump signed the uh, the uh, the CARES Act. It has been, what is this, seven, eight months. We're going on eight months when these pathetic yeah. souls and- who, who pretend to represent us have done anything... For the people of this country, it's it's obscene. And look what we did in Massachusetts here. Charlie Baker got rid of the eviction uh, moratorium. So where does that leave people? You see food lines all over the state, the, one of the richest states in the, in the nation. You see food lines all over the country. People are like desperate. You hear these stories from these food pantries where they're, they are like overwhelmed by, by demand. I mean, you think about this to me is like one of the biggest disgraces ever that, you know, in, in, okay, things were pretty horrible at the, at the, as the Depression were on the United States. We elected FDR and, and the government sprung into action. This government is just letting millions of people 
fall down into the abyss. I, I, I mean, totally agree. We're doing nothing. It's Family's hungry. Nuts. Look at these food lines. I just want to, uh, very quickly, I know we've got a break. We're going to talk more about the coronavirus at 1230 after we talk to Kyle Rose. Let me just say, in defense of Baker, mm-hmm. uh, Judge Wolf in the federal court made it pretty clear that an extension of the moratorium may not uh, pass constitutional muster. So Baker tosses $100 million plus into rent and other relief. The problem with that is it's not enough. Every and it's laborious and it's complicated. It is, it is complicated. That is true. There should be an eviction moratorium. Let's fight about the Constitution out Maybe you're right. of it later on. But in any case, check out this public citizen thing, which in stark uh, uh, statistics makes clear how much... <laughs> Uh, the people who claim to represent us. I mean, it's the Republicans. Well, let's face my it. Big themes, have abandoned Jim, the American people. That it, that it's that you know we're 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 so tough. We all worry about our guns, and we're macho, and we're individuals, and nobody can tell me to wear a mask. We are a bunch of big suckers, if you ask me. We are. Me. I'm with you. Anyway, uh, Carol Rose is up next from the ACLU. She's going to tell us about the uh, police reform action up on Beacon Hill, and about how the voting went uh, on election day. And what's going on since Election Day? Carol Rose from the ACLU is next. You're listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Head on Boston Public Radio at noon. It's Carol Rose, the head of the ACLU of Massachusetts, on yesterday's police reform bill, abortion reform on Beacon Hill. Will Governor Baker sign it? And is mail-in voting here to stay? You may have heard of the Brady List, a database of police officers in Massachusetts accused of misconduct. It's supposed to track officers who may have their credibility challenged in court if they have to testify in an investigation. In New Hampshire, that database is called the Lori List, and is the subject of a new podcast series for New Hampshire Public Radio. Senior reporter Jason Moo will join us to discuss ahead on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. I am Marjorie Egan. Welcome to our number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 W. Oops. GBH. Hello again, oh, Jim. It's too bad for you. That's a $10 demerit. I know. I'm sorry. It's been sorry. six months since George Floyd was murdered by Minneapolis police officers. The demonstrations that followed calling for sweeping police reforms haven't stopped. And months later, after negotiating behind closed doors, Massachusetts lawmakers on Beacon Hill have responded. Yesterday, they finally reached a compromise on a landmark police reform in Racial justice, Bill, we've been having an ongoing conversation with Carol Rose since the summer 
about what this legislation would need to do to lay the foundation for racial justice and equity, from being able to investigate and decertify lawless police officers to ending the legal doctrine known as qualified immunity. She joins us on the line to talk through this legislation, and if it goes far enough, Carol, of course, is the executive director of the Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. She joins us every month. Hello there, Carol. Hello, it's great to hear you all. And you yeah, too. Yeah, great to talk to you too, Carol. So I think this document, this this agreement is 129 pages, so I don't know how far you've gotten in it. But just um, your first reactions, what do you think so far? Oh, well, you know, it's a first reaction. Uh, it's really a, a huge step, a uh, historic step towards justice uh, in the, in the Commonwealth. There are... So many common sense reforms here that people have been pushing for it. As you said, Jim, from the time of George Floyd's killing, uh, you know, six months ago last week, uh, people have taken to the streets despite the pandemic, and they're really demanding change. And it's great to see that uh, the leaders, uh, in particular Speaker DeLeo, Senate President Karen Spilka, and the Senate conferees, uh, Representative Claire Cronin and Senator Will Brownsberger, put in a huge amount of time and effort with a lot of stakeholders and came up with a very big bill that has a lot of things to like. Give us Uh, a few examples. Give us a few examples of what to like. Of what to like. Um, You know, I think one of the big things to like a lot is the police officer standards and training, the post system, uh, which sets for the first time that Massachusetts is going to have a commission that basically is made up of nine commissioners um, appointed by the governor and the attorney general. Uh, many Six of the nine are going to be civilian, uh, and they're going to be able to go in and to make sure that when people lodge complaints against police, that first those complaints are going to be investigated, and that if a police officer is found to have violated someone's rights, they can actually be decertified. You know, and when you think about it, right, you need a license in Massachusetts and most states if you want to have a nail salon or a hair salon or, or be a school teacher or a lawyer, right? You don't need a license. You don't need a certification to be a police officer here. So this bill is going to mandate that police officers get certified every three years and that if they are found to have violated someone's rights, they can be decertified. And that means they can't just move over to another city or town and get a job there because um, it's a statewide licensure system. So this is something that uh, Governor Baker initially proposed and the House and Senate conferees came together. And I think it's a big step forward for Massachusetts. You know what I wondered, uh, Carol, about this nine-member commission? Um, there was a lot of talk about subpoena power, whether they would have that subpoena power, and also whether they're finding officers who should not have the job in their estimation, whether the public's going to know about that or whether it's going to remain secret. So two things, subpoena power and secrecy. You know, I'm not sure about the subpoena power. I hope they do. That's something I'll look into. But um, what I am pleased, uh, I can report, is that uh, there's a tremendous amount of openness. Uh, these are going to be subject to open meetings law and to public records laws. And so the transparency is really a, yet another really good reform that's included in the bill, Marjorie, because you know, who, who is it that said sunlight is the best disinfectant? Um, I think that's the way to make sure that not only is there a clear process and an open and transparent process, but the public can have trust that its leaders are actually taking steps to make sure that when it comes to public safety, we're all protected. I have a couple of questions about that also. Is, is The Globe did a, a good editorial in the middle of this uh, process talking about uh, the public having access not just to uh, uh, findings, I'll, I'll 
call them guilt findings, even though that's probably not the appropriate term for this commission. But they talked about having access to complaints, too, even if they didn't lead to a negative finding against the officer. Will the public have access to the complaints or only uh, uh, ones that lead to negative outcomes for an officer? Um, I believe, I'm not 100% sure because this is a 140-page No, bill, I know right? that, of course. We're going through the details. But I'm pretty sure that the, the transparency is going to go all the way to complaints and not simply to findings. You know, Carol, um, one of again, the... That goes Go that ahead. goes to the importance of transparency, again, not only for public safety, but for public trust in law enforcement. You know, one other thing, obviously, I mentioned in the lead qualified immunity, which I'd say most people had heard of, but I had no idea what it was. Can you tell us, one, define it briefly again, what the concept is, and if you think that this legislative compromise went as far as it should have? Well, so what, what what qualified immunity does is basically say that if someone uh, has their rights or believes their rights have been violated um, by an encounter with a police officer, that they ha- are able to go to court to get redressed. That means they could get their medical bills covered or their property uh, bills covered if their property was destroyed or if they were injured in some way. Uh, right now, in, under qualified immunity, which is actually a court-induced doctrine, it's not mm-hmm. a law, um, under qualified immunity... P- People can't get their day in court. You, you actually, law enforcement is immune from being sued in court if they violate your rights. And what that does is it shifts the risk of any harm that occurs through uh, a bad interaction with the police onto the victim. And if we were able to get the passage of a reform to qualified immunity, that would shift and people could have their day in court. And that means that the city or town would be responsible for making sure that the victims are compensated and the police officers are adequately trained. Um, so probably the, the key compromise or, let's say, disappointment from the ACLU's perspective in the bill is that we, in fact, didn't get a big change to qualified immunity. We got a little change to qualified immunity that says that if a police officer is decertified, then they can't have the protections of qualified immunity. But that's not a very powerful change, in a sense. Um, the good news is that there's a study that's going to be set up for the next year uh, that's going to report back on the implications of qualified immunity. Um, and we're hopeful that at that point uh, we'll be able to come back to the legislature with the renewed knowledge that I think the study group is going to give us and to show that qualified immunity is really important to make sure that people who are victimized by police misconduct or brutality actually are able to seek redress in the courts. And, you know, just to give some examples of this, because when you read about this, you can't believe, at least I couldn't, that this was true. Like, say, you know, you're in House A, and they mistakenly, the cops basically come into your house when House B is the home of the alleged criminal or the drug dealer, whoever it is, and they ransack your house from soup to nuts and damage it and do all this uh, terrible things to your home, and you're an innocent person who's done nothing wrong, you're out of luck. I mean, that, that's what's incredible. That's right. you, can't, you can't go after the cops. So there's case after case after case, whether they were beating right. up the wrong person or ransacking and, just, and in some cases destroying the house of, a wrong, of the wrong person. That person, tough luck, sweetheart, or guy. Right. And, it just goes, <laughs> and you know, Marjorie, it just, I mean, it really, the, the stories are really egregious. And, and it just egregious. comes to the sort of common sense notion that no one should be above the law. In our country, no one should be above the law, in particular, people who have guns and badges and the power of the state behind them. Um, and so we still have that, you know, legislative work is compromise work, but I think there's an opportunity to come back in the next legislative session on the qualified immunity question. Uh, but in the meantime, this law reform bill has given us a lot to like. 
Um, and I think that we should, uh, you know, we're hopeful that it'll get passed today. It's going to be, there's going to be a vote uh, in a little while this afternoon, and uh, then it'll land on, the gov- on Governor Baker's desk, and we'll hope he'll sign it without further ado, because um, I think this really reflects a lot of compromise, including some compromises by civil rights groups, um, but I think it's really a step forward, um, and that's what legislative work is all about, the art I, I, I'm, by the way, with you, I've quoted uh, Barack Obama only about 10,000 times in the last year or two, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And again, all, I haven't read any of the 129 papers. I've just read news accounts, and it seems like there's a lot of positive stuff. However, I think, and I know you're trying to be uh, positive, and I think you should be in a lot of respects. One, the single most difficult issue is the one that the legislature ducked, uh, qualified immunity. And even though people like Markey, Warren, Rollins, Presley, and I think you all believe it should have been eliminated. And secondly, respectfully, Carol, I, I used to lobby on Beacon Hill. I can't think of any measure in the years I was there or since that was tough that was sent to a study committee that ever saw the light of day again. So I hope with pressure from you and elected officials and the public that your optimism about next year is well-founded, but history would suggest that studies are where issues go to die, not to be rejuvenated. (laughs) You know, <laughs> yeah, we'll try. We'll try to change. It. I mean, I think the real the, the point of hope to give you a, a ray of sunshine in, in that because in general sure. that's true. Um, I think that uh, I think the real big uh, ray of hope here is that you know six months, eight months ago, nobody knew what qualified immunity. Oh, was. I agree. With you. I agree. With you. Yeah. And now it's so interesting at some of the uh, marches and things that have been going on. You see people with signs, you know, cardboard mm-hmm. hand-printed signs right. saying, end qualified immunity, no one should be above the law, those kinds of things. And so I think we're changing the public conversation. And I think we've changed the public conversation because I think most people didn't actually realize that, that it was this difficult to sue a police officer who might have violated your rights. So mm-hmm. I think this is I, – I still think – and you're right, I am a – you know, hope is a political act, right? So I am an optimist. But, um, but I think, again, there's so much to like here. You know, we we have been working for a long time to try to get a police officer standards and training or a post system yeah. uh, in, in Massachusetts and limits on chokeholds and limits on no knock. No, those are big deals. I agree. Force, I agree. De-escalation. I mean, so there's so much here um, in an omnibus bill that there's bound to be compromises. Um, you know, but the ACLU has been fighting for freedom for 100 years now. So, um we're pretty relentless or persistent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll be back on qualified immunity. Um, and I think now that the public begins to understand what it is, we're likely to win. Well, I think if people want to get an idea of what goes on with, um, <clears throat> with outrageousness, they should look at the front page of the Globe today, Andrea SD's stories about the uh, police chief making $336,000 and what's going on. Um, I, I'm pretty sure it's a Yeah, well, there's also... <laughs> It's also going to be, yeah, no, the the bill includes um, decertification and and investigations into things like abuse of overtime uh, and things like that. So I think there's going to be some of that uh, cleanup that needs to happen in in Massachusetts law enforcement that we've been reading about in the Globe um, for the last few months. So Carol, uh, Carol Rose from the ACLU, um, you wrote a piece about your wish list up on Beacon Hill, and you talked about uh, legislation about abortion. What's, what's that, the status of that, and what do you argue for? Well, I, I think this is another area where I think the, our lawmakers listened to the Massachusetts voters uh, and really responded. Um, you know, and I think with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, from the Supreme Court, who's been a champion of uh, women's rights for so long, uh, she started the ACLU National Women's Rights Project, in fact. Um, 
but I think with her passing and the and the other states, a lot of the red states really moving to try to resist restrict women's access uh, to abortion rights. Um, it's great to see that our our legislature is actually pushing forward with some pretty again common sense, modest changes that would ensure that people have access to abortion health care, have access to abortion, whether, regardless of whether they're rich or poor. That's really what it comes down to. Because right now, if you have uh, a find out late in your pregnancy, not even late after 24 weeks, that you you're, have a fatal fetal anomaly, meaning there's no way that the child could be born uh, and live. It's not going to happen. Uh, the notion that you would be forced to carry that to term is just cruel um, and, and shouldn't be allowed. And right now, the only people who are able to get the medical care they need in that situation are people who can fly to places like Colorado. So you have to have a lot of money. Um, and even then, during COVID, it's almost, you know, it's impossible to do for a lot of people. Um, so what this would do is just to make an exception in those rare cases uh, where there's a fatal fetal anomaly and permit women to get access to abortion care at that time. Uh, it also changes, it enables, this is a, maybe a silver lining of COVID, it enables uh, youth who need to go in front of a judge because they can't go in front of their parents, maybe they're in foster care or something, uh, and it would enable them to actually do that by tele you know, tele, uh, teleprompter or whatever, you know, by Zoom or something like that. So they wouldn't have to physically go into a courthouse. And that's a common sense reform, uh, again, that we don't want to have a situation where only the wealthy people with a lot of access to things like knowing how to get to a judge have access to health care. It shouldn't, however people feel about abortion on a personal level, it shouldn't be the government saying we have one set of rules for rich people and another set of rules for poor people. It should be fair for everybody. You know, several of our emailers have reminded us, we've been talking about this before in the context of mask mandates. You know, you hear all across mm-hmm. the country, my body, my choice, I'm not going to wear a mask, freedom and all this kind of stuff. There's, there's a really ironic situation here where so many millions of Americans think it's an outrageous infraction on your freedom to wear a mask, but they have no problem yeah. with forcing a woman who has, who's, has a wanted baby who finds out that that baby's going to die, they have no problem forcing that woman to carry that child to term and then suffer with the child after birth until the child expires. I mean, it's really... <laughs> hey, Carol. Uh, is, is there... It's actually, Marjorie, we... it's actually really cruel. And, and, I, and I think it's, it's so good that you raised that because, you know, in terms of religious liberty, it, it, people, we have a, a right to choose our religion and to abide by the dictates of our religions in this country. But we shouldn't have the government coming in and mandating uh, what you should or shouldn't believe or should or shouldn't do with your own body. So I think you're absolutely right. And that's why I think of these things as really um, common sense reforms that actually also make a statement that in Massachusetts, um, we are listening to the voters, our leaders are listening to the voters, um, and are putting freedom first. Well, let's talk about one leader in particular. Does uh, Charlie Baker think it's common sense reform? I hope so. Um, <laughs> we have no know. indication, though, um, right? We don't... Yeah, he's we, not, have, we have no we, indication, one way or the other. Um, he's pretty... He keeps his cards close to the yeah. best um, you know, on these kinds of things. Um, but I'm hopeful that he's going to come around because these things are incredibly uh, popular with the voters. And I think that's what elected leaders should do is to listen to what the voters say uh, and abide by their wishes. You know, uh, uh, Carol, the looking back at uh, uh, election, uh, both pre-November 3rd and post-November 3rd, it seems to me my assessment uh, from afar is uh, the courts were pretty atrocious pre-November 3rd. The courts were pretty great. 
post November third uh, that election day went far better. And I know you were in one of those integrity voter integrity coalitions that was overseeing yeah. this kind of thing. That election day went far better virtually everywhere than we expected. But one of my concerns is. Is the best of Election Day going to continue post-pandemic? For example, is near universal mail-in with no uh, with no need to come up with a reason? Is that going to survive, or is Trumpian slash Republican concern going to kill it in a whole bunch of states? What's your sense of the the future after what we lived through uh, uh, over the past couple of months? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, the really good news from this election, I mean, there's lots of good news, but the, in addition, uh, you know, the ACU is nonpartisan. But I think what was great is the voter turnout uh, nationwide and here in Massachusetts. I mean, here we saw a record turnout and yeah. 76% of registered voters participated. That's fantastic, you know. Um, and 42% of those who voted mailed in their ballots, did mail-in ballots, and 23 went for early voting. Uh, and so I just think, you know, so only 35% of voters actually cast their ballot on Election Day. We want to expand the right to vote, you know, expand the right to the franchise, um, because that's what makes a democracy more robust. Um, I think that in addition to saying that we should keep mail-in ballots, like so many other states do, and have no problems with election fraud. Um, we should also have same-day election registration. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that we heard uh, through our election protection team uh, was that in some instances, people who thought they had registered to vote because they checked the box at the RMV uh, showed up and then they weren't on the rolls. So there's some things that we want to look into, but, you know, I really want to give a shout out to Secretary of State Bill Galvin and in particular his uh, election, his voting rights guru, uh, Michelle Tessinari. Um, they really did a great job, both in working with the ACLU and other civil rights groups to make sure that we had, and the legislature, to make sure that we had mail-in ballot as an option because of COVID, uh, and then to make sure that all the concerns that arose on election day, I think we had about uh, 400 calls that came in with concerns. Um, they were really responsive. And we, as a result, we had a really clean and fair election um, here in Massachusetts. And, and by the way, across the country. Um, and I, I just have to, for a minute, give a shout out to my colleagues in some of the battleground states, particularly Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, and Georgia, uh, where because of the work of the ACLU, both litigating to stop voter suppression efforts in those states, and then also having election protection people on the ground, um, literally millions of people were able to vote who might not otherwise have been allowed to vote. Um, so I, it really shows that when we as citizens exercise our agency in a democracy, we do have power. There is such a thing as people power, um, and that makes our democracy stronger. Democracy is a muscle. The more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. Uh, and so I think right now the key for all of this is to not sit back and say, well, that's done. You know, we almost went over the abyss. We took a step back from the abyss, but we're still on the edge. So there's a lot of work to be done to make sure that our democracy is strengthened from now, here on out, and to make sure that equal rights and liberty are also strengthened at the same time. Can I tell you something? I am so excited. I'm serious by this, about your optimism, about so many things. What I'm asking, requesting of you is, even after the Supreme Court of the United States overturns the election, I want to see you still be optimistic. Is that a deal? (laughs) As I said, Jim, hope is a political act. And not just that, uh, not, not just that, I, I just want to make sure that you think it's one step over the line for Christopher Krebs, the, uh, the election official who Cyber made sure that the Russians guy. weren't infiltrating and that the, and that foreign nations weren't inter, weren't, in, you know, were interfering and that the thing was, uh, the election was, was Most quite fair. Most secure election in American history. 
Yeah, I just that right. you would disagree with the Chris, uh, with the lawyer for the president who thinks that uh, crap should be drawn and quartered and taken out and shot at dawn. You think that's a step? He said too that on Howie for... Carr's show yesterday, by the way, Marty. Yeah. that's the source oh of that. I mean, it's that just, quote, that kind of gaslighting. You know, the kind of gaslighting that that uh, Donald Trump has been engaged in for the last four years and has escalated now that he's losing power. Uh, it's just really shameful, and it's really been a strain on our democracy. Um, and I think it's time for all of us to come together uh, as people who care about democracy. Uh, you know, I heard somebody say this was a, this vote was really a, between people who really support democracy and people who would do what it takes uh, to remain entrenched in power. Um, and I, I just think it's so important that everyone who hears this realizes the importance of their vote, of their voice, um, because it, just a few people can make a big difference in making sure that our democracy survives. Um, and I think what we need to do is uh, really to be dismissive of these gaslighting efforts by Donald Trump. You know, one thing people didn't even realize, even if all of the allegations of fraud that they alleged in court uh, had been true, they still wouldn't have changed the election. Right? They still would have changed, even if everything. But in fact, none of them were true. They were all thrown out of court, including by you know, judges appointed by Donald Trump himself. Yeah, it's amazing. So this, this yeah. was really an effort to distract the public, to undermine faith in our government and in our democracy. And I think it's a patriotic act for us to disregard uh, what he says. You know, we're out of time, but I'm going to give you, if I may, an assignment for next month. I'm serious. Is Larry Tribe was okay. on television with me last week, and we talked briefly about whether or not the Constitution needs to be changed to limit the powers of a lame duck president post-election and pre-inauguration of the new president. And I know it's a dicey issue, but uh, let's talk about it next time you're here, Carol, okay? I would love to. Thank you, Great. Tim. Thank Thanks you, so much for your work. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, See you soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Carol Rose. Uh, Carol Rose is the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts. She joins us every month. Thanks again, Carol. The U.S. are out of control. Pitting our hopes on a vaccine is not enough. We're taking your calls asking, are you ready to head into a tough winter where physical distancing and wearing a mask are still the best defense against this disease? Or not? This is 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, Jim Browning and Marjorie. And under normal circumstances, it would be alarming news to hear that amid a pandemic that was spiraling out of control, that the president's coronavirus advisor was resigning. Of course, that actually comes as a relief because that advisor is Dr. Atlas, a man with absolutely no experience with infectious diseases who likes to peddle fringe theories and remedies. That's one glimmer of good news. Another, obviously, is the accelerated rate at which a vaccine is expected to be ready. However, nearly every single state is a coronavirus hotspot. Yesterday, as a record number of people were hospitalized, Anthony Fauci warned that Thanksgiving gatherings will yield a surge upon a surge. It's December 1st. We're headed into winter, into the indoors, and despite the promise of the vaccine, our only defense against coronavirus is still to wear a mask and physically distance. So if you have not been taking this seriously, are you ready to take it seriously now? Have you psychologically prepared for a winter of relative isolation? Some uh, experts argue the worst three months of this virus, knowing that we could all reap the benefits in a matter of months. What sacrifices have you made? 
what are you willing to make? The number is 877-301-8970. If you want to comment on what's driving me and Marjorie nuts is the abject failure of Congress uh, to respond to the needs of the people who pay their salaries, feel free to do that, too. I read a few minutes ago a tweet. You can go to my uh, Twitter account and find it from Public Citizen, where virtually every Western nation is paying somewhere from 75 to 100 percent of the wages of uh, workers who are out of work. And, of course, the exception is the United States, which is uh, paying nothing. 877-301-8970. You know what I understand? Apparently the contentious things in in Congress or whether they're going to – the Republicans want businesses to not be able to be held liable if they force people to work in unsafe conditions. And that's obviously a big big concern. Democrats want uh, states to get money. The Republicans don't want that. Why can't they just segregate the things they're fighting about and just do something about the money? Republicans have proposed that, by the way. Uh, The Democrats' view is – I'm not defending it. I'm just explaining it – is whatever you put to the side never gets addressed, and states are starving, as evidenced by the fact, you know, we talked earlier today, we're the fourth highest per capita testing in the country in Massachusetts, and our testing is still grotesquely uh, uh, inaccessible and unaffordable. So uh, I guess the feeling is, again, I can't speak for anybody, but I can just relate what I read, is uh, every one of these things matters, and if you don't get it in one package, look what happened last time. You had to wait seven months for Congress to even talk yeah. about it again, and they're not. Do- By the way, people should say uh, there are a small bipartisan uh, uh, groupings of senators, including Romney, uh, Susan Collins, Cassidy, Republicans, and Lisa uh, Murkowski, Coons, and I don't think is Murkowski included she, in that. Yeah, this, this that's working on this. Yeah, this nine hundred billion yeah. dollar compromise, but it, the White House doesn't support it. The Democratic leadership doesn't support it. The Republican leadership doesn't support it. Before we get to your calls, let me just uh, add a few things to the discussion. Here's the most trusted man in America, I think, on this issue. On Sunday's Meet the Press, warning about the state of the pandemic following the spike in gatherings last week for Thanksgiving. Here's Dr. Fauci. What we expect, unfortunately, as we go for the next couple of weeks into December, that we might see a surge superimposed upon that surge that we're already in. And, you know, and, and when I give that message, I, I don't want to frighten people except to say it is not too late at all for us to do something about this. And in the Washington Post uh, during the break, I pulled up a story there. If people travel and gather for Christmas as they did this past week, and by the way, people, a lot of people say it's going to be worse because Christmas is an international holiday rather than Thanksgiving, which is an American one. They project the country's already catastrophic situation could reach levels where hospitals are forced to choose which patients to save and which to let die and where lockdowns become unavoidable realities of everyday life. I'm not sure the American people are prepared for what virtually every expert in this field says is coming in December, January and February. You know, uh, the places right now that are hardest hit, this is according to the New York Times, Midwestern mountain states, Nebraska, Iowa, Wyoming, the Dakotas, and they're ones that were heavily uh, voted for the president, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because that's those areas are still where mask wearing is controversial, despite the fact that their numbers are going through the roof. And there's these other two factoids that was in the Times piece talked about how uh, if everybody did uh, wear masks, 130,000 lives, 130,000 lives could be saved by February. And the study by Goldman Sachs estimated that 
uh, universal use of masks, and obviously they're you know, <laughs> the, the devils of Wall Street, if, you, if you're not a big fan of Wall Street, Goldman Sachs estimated that universal use of masks would save $1 trillion that may be lost to business shutdowns and medical bills um, during these next few months. But people haven't done it so far. Are they all of a sudden going to have an epiphany no, I, it, well, and it, start it is, doing it? They don't give a damn. It is kind of crazy. I, I, I don't know what they think, it, but it's just kind of crazy. I mean, you have people telling you over and over and over again, it's going to make things better. And by the way, and, just be, I know this is not your point. It's not just red states. Uh, uh, Governor, oh, no, Raimondo, Governor Raimondo has talked about how they're going to run out of uh, hospital beds potentially at the end of the month. Gavin yeah, Newsom got- in California run out of ICU beds by Christmas, he says, based on the current trending. I mean, it's a mess absolutely everywhere. 877-301-8970. And one more thing before we get to the cause. I thought this is a very interesting story that this uh, physician, Abrar Karan, an internist at Brigham and Women's, wrote in The Globe today. Mm-hmm. He was talking about the stigma. And I think there's an idea in certain sectors that only certain people get this. You know, even though the president obviously had it and half the White House has had it, so mm-hmm. obviously um, it's not always it's not a foolproof thing. But that it's poor people, the Latinx community, the black community, uh, that it's that it's a poor so people kind of thing. So we don't have to give thing. a damn because it's them. Is that the well? Point listen the to this. Making? He talks about. He said. He said he was talking to friends from high school. This physician, and he said, and they said something that had never occurred to him during his nine months of research on COVID. That these two friends of his, he's going to call them Jim and Bob, are out playing golf. And one of them, uh, and Bob's wife is on the phone. Somebody from the club runs out and says, Bob's wife is on the phone. She sounds all upset. And Jim says to Bob, what happened? And Bob kind of brushed it off saying, well, she just wanted me to know that someone uh, with COVID uh, has been exposed to his, his wife and his wife is concerned about it. Jim, whose wife was pregnant, got upset about this and said to Bob, hey, forget it, we have to stop this golf game, I can't play golf with you if your wife was exposed, I have a pregnant wife. Turns out that um, Bob was lying. It wasn't that his wife was exposed to someone who had COVID. It turns out his wife had COVID herself. And he didn't, he, he said he was embarrassed and he didn't want to tell Jim the whole story at the time because he was embarrassed that his wife had gotten the virus. And you know, I think that's a significant thing. That there are certain people Maybe who think I have a really good friend who lives in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, you know, um, middle class, maybe even an upper middle class woman. She didn't think this was a big deal until one of her best friends wound up eleven days in the hospital, and then she realized it wasn't just uh, an other person disease. You know the way years ago people used to say about AIDS? Well, that's just gay yeah. guys that get AIDS. I think there's a little bit of that involving. Um, this as well. And one Can last I say thing. something about Bob the golfer? Yeah. Dope. Sandy in Westboro, <laughs> you're first on Boston Public Radio. Welcome, Sandy. Hi. Hello. I, I guess I have a huge rant. Um, I Go. work in the restaurant in, in just, industry. Yep. And, you know, we've, we were busy. Now we're slow. My restaurant just closed again to do takeout only. Most of us only have about three weeks left of unemployment. Um, a lot of single moms. It's, it's, you can't live on $294 a week, no matter how much you've saved. I've probably gone through my savings. Um, but so many people I've waited on who are doing big family get-togethers. Takeouts were incredible. Uh, people were traveling. It, it was a joke to most of these people. I, I was, I'm furious. My oldest son had Saturday, went to go get a COVID test. And he went to four different places. He could not find a rapid test. 
and he went Saturday, got tested. He still hasn't gotten his results back. And his boss was like, well, you know, you're really not around too many people. Can you do X, Y, Z for me? And he's like, no, no, I can't. So it, this world, it's, it's absolutely crazy. And I'm just so upset by, this, by everything. It's if it's not one thing, it's another. And I can't tell you how many secret card games there are and these people are getting COVID. There's, nobody cares. There's not a lot of people who care and are following the rules, and it just drives me Cindy, out of my mind. I am lucky enough to be getting a paycheck, unlike you, but I am 100% with your analysis of our Cindy, neighbors. Can I ask you a question? Do you have, sure. have you had any conversations with people explaining why they're not worried about this? You know, it's funny. When you rely on somebody's tip... Yeah. It's almost like politics. I couldn't say I am. Yeah. I am. I'm, bo- I'm voting for because they'll take they take it out on your tip, and okay. that's my gotcha. Um, it, it, as much as I'd like to say, you know, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I have to feed my. I have to feed my family. Well, we're glad and you're telling I us. I have opened my mouth up more than I should, and I, you know, sometimes that gets me in trouble because the older I get, I just don't care anymore. But um, it, it, it's absolutely awful that the things that go on and. People don't care. My daughter is six weeks pregnant. We, I mean, I'm sorry. She has six weeks left to go. And I am a wreck because, you know, it's just to keep everybody safe. It's just so hard. I didn't see them for Thanksgiving. We just had, you know, a very small Thanksgiving with the people that we live with. And um, my daughter and son-in-law came over and they were in the pouring rain on the porch to say hello to my dad for Thanksgiving. You know, so many people don't care. It's. You know, and, Sandy, and honestly, about six months ago, I kind of thought, oh, I don't know anybody who has this. Maybe it's not true. You know, I'm kind of wishy-washy, but it, it's, it's a true thing. I see. So, I know a lot of people with it. It's very sad. You captured every important angle. Sandy, we wish you and your kids luck. Thank you very much for sharing your story. That's horrible. It is horrible. It's, it, it is horrible. And we're all very hopeful about these vaccines. But that's going to be the next big fight. Are you going to, we can't mandate masks. Are we going to mandate vaccines? Are we going to say you can't go to school unless you have a vaccine? People are suing Charlie Baker because he had the courage to say you got to have a regular seasonal flu shot before you go back to school, I think, by the end of the year. And why? Because if you prevent an outbreak of the seasonal flu, then you're going to have less of a capacity problem. For COVID nine people, how about the Supreme Court? And he's getting sued. How about the Supreme Court? Oh, you can't, you know, you can't tell people they can't have massive religious services. So let's go all go in five to four. (laughs) Sing with the wasn't it? Was it five to four? Yeah, it was five to four. You're right. Tony Barrett did the uh, trick. Tony Barrett. Yeah, let's go in and sing the, the hymns and breathe on everybody and just you know create a super spreader event. John in the car. Thank you for calling. Hi, John. Thanks for taking my call, Mark. You're in Jim. Sorry to uh, break your echo chamber that you folks live in. First off, I do wear a mask. Second off, you go unchecked in your facts in the sense that you're saying that there's zero help from the government for small businesses. I'm mm-hmm. here to tell you that's not the truth. I received a great deal of money from the PPP program. And as well, I know of a number of different small businesses that did. You can address that, too. John, John, before well, you go ahead, over, John, before John. you go ahead, was that once. was in the CARES Act. Uh, and a supplemental appropriation for the PPP. What we said is there has been nothing since that, which happens to be factually accurate. Next. 
you need to go and look at statistical analysis. Ron Paul tweeted out a statistical analysis using ratios to basically say that there was extreme fraud during the voting process. It resulted in 42 electoral votes being taken by mm-hmm. Joe Biden, which were not not the case. It happened in Wisconsin, Michigan, and in Georgia. I would suggest you go read that article and then educate yourself as to why there is fair. That's a deal. Fraud. That's fair. That's fair. And by the way, John, okay. what you should do, no, it's fair. I think we'll read that article, and you read the article about Dr. Rand Paul getting a test for COVID, and while he's waiting for results, goes to the congressional gym and puts all his colleagues at risk. Are you kidding, John? Hold on, John. May I just add something to that? Um, What Rand Paul claims and what the president and his allies have claimed is they make these claims and statements. And then what happens is they go to court where you have to have some evidence. And there is none. And that's why suit after suit after suit has been thrown out by judges, many of whom are Republicans, and some of them who've been appointed by Donald Trump. How about so it that, doesn't John? really matter what Rand Paul says. How about that, John? When you, get into a, when you have to get into a court and prove it, none of it has, has stood up, John, except for a few hundred votes. Different. Maybe it was a couple of thousand in Georgia when they do the recount. A hundred and some. The, John, the how about a response some votes to this? There. Why hasn't any court yeah. sided with uh, Rand Paul's arguments and Rudy Giuliani? Can you hear me? Sure, sure. Go ahead, John. Okay. Well, you're in the background. Is that, how about that, John? Is that your rebuttal to me? Yes, it how is. How about that, John? Yes, it is. How okay, about well, it, John? That's very shallow. You, you call yourself a lawyer. First off, you need to go read the article and really drill down into statistical analysis. John, how many courts, how many courts have upheld that argument? Why don't you list them for us, John? Who knows if it's – you know what? Who knows if that article's been brought to court? You don't I didn't know say that. article. I, I said that. those arguments. How many courts have sustained well, okay. that argument? No, How many I'm, courts I'm, led I'm by Republican judges, John, have said there's zero evidence? There is evidence. Go read the article. Educate yourself. John, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. 877-301-8970. Well, so there, there you go. go. <laughs> no, I have to read the article, obviously. Well, again, it's important, it's important to point out that this is the strategy, and John, unfortunately, is falling for it, that people repeat things and say things. He doesn't believe they just, that. They he just throw out lies. And, but, but one good thing about this whole thing is I think a lot of us were afraid that a lot of Republicans would knuckle under the president. And a, a lot of Republicans that support the president on the local level and the state level and the federal mm-hmm. level have been profiles and courage. Unlike their elected officials, they've stood up and they've said, you know, judges have said there is no evidence. Local Republican officials have said there is no evidence. Mm-hmm. This Christopher Krebs guy who did what we were so afraid of, Russian interference the second time around, mm-hmm. really did a yeoman's patriotic job in rescuing us from from the Russian interference and assured that this election was remarkably safe, which is no mean feat, because I was very skeptical about mail-in voting. He was right, I was wrong. It, it, it worked out well. Um, they have been courageous. Marjorie, you know how pathetic and they're getting it is death threats. that we have to nod at each other to praise people who are adhering to the law? Well, That's again, why they deserve praise, because they're not breaking the law to satisfy Donald Trump's fantasies. I know, but 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 it's important to point out that, with all due okay. respect to John, he was living in a in a fantasy kind of situation. Paul in Boston. There. Hi, Paul. Welcome. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, you know, I was eighteen when I started uh, college in Chicago, and as a young gay man in 1984, I had to go through the AIDS crisis and still show up to work every day. 
not tell everybody that all my cohorts and new friends that I was starting to make were dying by 1990. And it was a pandemic. And even, I mean, this is very bad. Like what's going on today is bad. But I can't tell you how much better it is. So it's been pretty interesting to look back. The other point that I wanted to make is, you know, when we didn't have a test and it took years to get a test to figure out if you were HIV positive, right. we did something called state sex, which was assume you are positive, right. period. And, and, and if we just translated some of these behaviors, if ever, back then, if I were to say, you know what, I'm not going to wear a condom, what on earth? And that is the exact same thing that people are doing, saying, I'm not going to wear a mask, but I'm going to get close to you and in your face. I mean, it's crazy. I, I, it baffles me. Well, you mentioned that you started in the 1980s and 1984. That was about the time the two mm-hmm. diametrically opposed politicians, people like Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill mm-hmm. from right here in Cambridge. Jesse Helms actually worked together on yeah. some things, Paul. It was a very different country and a very, very different world, unfortunately. Paul, thank you for the call. Did you read the article in the Washington Post a day or two ago about how leaders in virtually every Western ally, at least what used to be allies, are ridiculing, and their people, the United States, as the one holdout that is not willing to do the most basic, I won't even say sacrifices, the most basic, take the most basic precautions to keep themselves, their neighbors, and the people they love safe. We're path- we are a pathetic group of people. We just are. Well, I'll say it for the millionth time. People live in a uh, media universe that's full of lies. Yeah, you're right. And unfortunately, they believe them. Brian from Westboro. Hi, Brian. Hello, Brian. Hey, thanks for taking my call. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. I uh, just wanted to get some input real quick. Um, I had COVID in March. I was one of the first. Mm. Uh, I think I was number four oh. in my town. Um so luckily recovered, no hospital needed. But I think you were talking about how, like, a lot of times people don't realize how serious it is until they or, you know, a loved one have it. And yeah. I think something else that's really important to point out is, like, there are really long-term implications that come with it. You know, it's you've, you've probably heard of long COVID or oh, sure. long yes. dollars in the news. But, yeah, like, I, my long, I haven't breathed, you know, I haven't breathed right since probably, oh since probably April there's a lot of there's just it's really troubling that people are like oh whatever I'm not I'm not afraid of it but they don't realize that like this stuff sticks with you you know and I just really wish they could get that message across Hey Brian when you say you don't breathe right do you mean you're short of breath going up the stairs or you just have trouble sleeping or what do you mean Um it's it's kind of a mix um a lot of it is like I can't really I can't really do long distance walking like I did. It's, you know, you just got to stay in, in shape and try to keep it up. But there's a lot of like, similar to like, uh, like an asthmatic would have, I'll have periods where, you know, my, my lungs kind of tighten up a little bit and there's really no wow. explanation for it. By the way, Brian, to make you feel better, if I yep. can, John just emailed and said he spoke to Rand Paul. Rand Paul says, you're wrong. You're breathing fine. You just didn't realize. Oh, it. geez. All <laughs> I had to do was email him. Hey, Brian, I'm really glad you called. Uh, I'm really glad you called because when you hear people like Donald Trump say 99.8% of people survive, whatever the percentage of survival is, there are a lot of Brians in the world that are surviving. But 
continue to have very serious after effects. So, Brian, thank you very much uh, for the call. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, coming up, we're going to talk to uh, Corby Cummer, our food man, about restaurants closing their outside locations all around Boston. We're going to talk about school lunches and the terrible hunger crisis uh, with people not having enough food all across the country. Corby Cummer is next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie Egan. Just as restaurants were accumulating enough heat lamps to keep outdoor dining viable, Boston has pulled the plug on what has been a lifeline during the pandemic. Starting today, Boston restaurants can no longer expand their seating by using public spaces, such as sidewalks or parking lanes, only the property they own. Joining us in line to explain this, I hope, Trump's ongoing war on school lunches, and now community fridges are a partial answer to the nation's growing hunger crisis. This is Corby Cummer. Corby is the executive director of the Food and Society Policy Program at the Aspen Institute, senior editor at The Atlantic, and senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy. Welcome, Corby Cummer. Good afternoon. And to you. So, Corby Cummer, um, I'm wondering what you think about this uh, um, end of outdoor dining. You know, one of the Good it's not things. an end to outdoor dining. It's, well, you, that you can't be on these yeah. publicly owned mm. parts of the yeah. sidewalk or the street, which means it certainly will be shrunken. It, yep. it will not be what it was. You know, part of the good, if there's anything good about climate change or climate disruption, is that sometimes we have unusually warm weather, you know, like we've had in this November. So I, I don't know. Couldn't they have let them stay out there? They're in desperate straits, these restaurants. So I was very surprised that Boston was cutting it all off right away. But also I was thinking this is a problem that cities are going to face. Because New York restaurants, uh, whom I'm in constant touch with from my Safety First guideline work, which we're continuing for restaurant worker safety, were outraged that the city told them two weeks ago, if it snows, if we plow, you're responsible for clearing the decks. You take everything off the sidewalk, most especially any barrier you have between the sidewalk and your tables, because we are going to need that cleared so the filthy snow can build up right next to your nice outdoor setup. And they were all thinking, how can I get myself, depending on a snowfall, over to my restaurant sidewalk and and clear it out when I have no idea when they're actually going to plow. So they were thinking this isn't going to work so well. At the same time, they have invested a ton of money in these outdoor setups that Boston restaurants have, have made look beautiful, too. But what the compromise is, and I think that it's it's pretty good, it just depends on where your restaurant is, is that if you've got a parking lot in the back that's not city property and you've worked out a deal with whoever has rights to that parking, like, for example, the city of Cambridge's civic lot behind Central Square, I hope that Cambridge is allowing that to continue because the restaurants can make a deal with the snowplows, with the city themselves, or if they've got any kind of back seating, they can keep doing that. But I don't know what the percentage of affected restaurants is going to be. I do know that once snow comes, it's going to be a problem everybody has to face. But, you know, I still, by the way, the mayor is going to be with us on Friday. So, obviously, 
We'll get it from the horse's mouth. Mouth. I don't understand why a restaurant can't continue to use, if they've been allowed to so far, let's say parking spaces in front of their restaurant. And on a snow day, they have to clear the area where the tables or tents or, or heaters are. Uh, uh, you know, just follow the weather. And I, I, I just you mean like what New York has said. Yeah, I, I, I just it seems to me that uh, that anything we focus a lot on restaurants. We talk about small businesses, but them in particular because it's one of the mm-hmm. few small businesses mm-hmm. that everybody patronizes. And it seems to me you bend over backwards to give them a break. And I thought this was a creative way. And I, I really I hear what you're saying. I don't understand at all why a compromise that continued to benefit the restaurant in light of the fact we've talked on the show corby a lot of people are planning on eating out in real on really cold days like the nordic types do and that sort of stuff so uh, i maybe we just leave it to our conversation with walsh but i think it's unfortunate and the ending of this was premature they did extend it a month from october 31st to november 30th but I think it could have been extended again. As far as I know, New York City has extended it indefinitely. I think you're right. So they were continuing their yeah. open street. But then again, they were imposing these snow day warnings on mm-hmm. restaurants that had them all alarmed. But you know, another thing, a, a friend of mine on my on my restaurant committee wrote me this morning, uh, alarmingly at 4.45 a.m., a East Village restaurant in New York City it had this very nice wooden um, plywood side walls, half walls, so they were safe, and uh, roof arrangement. And the whole thing tipped over because it was a uh, windy night in New uh, York City, oh right God. into the street. So I uh, will send you that image, but don't show it to Mayor Walsh. Okay. <laughs> so, so, Corby Kummer, um, we've said this to you before, boston.eater.com does, does great work. Uh, they got a great piece about community fridges in and around Boston. Give us a lowdown. I love this story. So, Me too. I want to be so there and go to every community fridge and take clean produce, whatever that is, but not half-eaten food, not leftovers. But if you have extra food that is perishable and needs a refrigerator, Different communities have set up community fridges. It's kind of a big extension of the little free libraries that are like fun birdhouses with doors or without doors that people put books in all over the city. But this is community fridges, and they're actual plugged into some kind of outdoor outlet, refrigerator, some of them like the one in uh, Fields Corner, Dorchester, that was pictured in boston.eater.com with a, a lean-to shed enclosing the refrigerator, keeping the snow off, and having shelves where you can put pantry, food bank-style uh, donations. And so they list the ones that are currently running. J.P.'s, which was the first. J.P. is the center of the universe. is out of order now, but they're fixing it. Somerville, Alston, um, Fenway Fridge, Dorchester, two in Dorchester, one in Rosendale, these are the, like the greatest things ever because the communities are, are, are fielding bulletin boards with spreadsheets on local community websites saying, here's what's available, here are the rules for what you can put in. We've got shelves in this one, but don't put stuff on the bottom because vermin can get to it. I mean, they're all being very specific about what you can leave, but don't you just want to go out Stock up extra while you're shopping and then make a stop on your way home. Yes. Yes. 
Yes. And you should. I think and it's they list, great, too. In this article, they list um, where they are all around Boston. So if you want to go, there's probably one right close to where you live. It's, kind of, it's a really kind of heartwarming story and all these other bad stories. Okay. Marjorie, is your Zoom, I'm sorry to interrupt, is your Zoom sound on? Because I'm hearing you several times. If you can just Let check. me check, Jim. And, uh, uh, Let me check. Is should that I go better? ahead while you're doing that? Is it's it better, much better now? Thank it's you. better now. You, you're right. It was on. You know, Corby, so I, I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Okay. I want to ask you about this because this drives me crazy. These stories about these uh, food delivery places, uh, you know, uh, DoorDash, uh, Uber Eats, etc. It sounds like at Grubhub, that they're not only shafting the restaurants with taking a huge cut out of the restaurant's profit when they make the meal, they're also shafting their own workers. So I'm wondering, should we be ordering from any of these people? Or should we just get in the car or walk over ourselves? Well, what they are, are Uber Eats and especially DoorDash and Caviar are not only making out like bandits, they are bandits. They are robbing their workers who... Our gig economy and don't get health insurance, they are subjecting them to all kinds of danger. And what really shocked me about this very good photo essay in the New York Times was that the profits have doubled and tripled for these delivery services uh, services because of the pandemic. Um, when you looked at the figures there, it's way buried in the story. It was, it was twice as much for DoorDash. Uh, twice as much for Uber delivery and three times as much for DoorDash over last year, which is to say Uber's delivery service just between July and September, $1.45 billion in sales compared with $645 million last year. Uh, DoorDash was shown caviar, $1.92 billion compared with $587 million. So they could protect their workers, and what they say is, well, you know, we're giving them plenty of masks and hand sanitizer. What they're not giving them is health insurance or money to buy their $2,000 electronic bike. So it's a rotten deal for delivery people, but it quotes lots of people, this photo essay, who were laid off at restaurants. They were servers. They don't have it now. They know the restaurant business. They've signed up to be delivery people. They're not paid well. And, of course, the restaurants pay like 30 to 35% of their sales revenue uh, that comes in the door through these services to the service. Well, there are two things uh, to be a broken record, if I may, just for a second. The legislature, to my knowledge, has still uh, not addressed the totally reasonable measure that would put a cap on the percentage that uh, they can charge restaurants. Now, while this wouldn't uh, solve the problem of the so-called independent contractors, not employees, who they screw on the other end. That would deal with one end. And correct me if I'm wrong, Corby, uh, this state legislature is also totally free to do what California tried to do, and unfortunately the voters overrode it. They could pass a law that said these kinds of workers are employees. They are not independent contractors. And as a result, they'd be subject to minimum wage laws and all the other things that attend to uh, regular employees. Am I not right about that? The legislature could sure, fix this. Sure, I fault. It's too bad Massachusetts hasn't tried it. But by the same token, I've not seen any of the other 49 states try to tell Uber, hey, in our state, buddy, you are an employer and you have to give worker protection. Well, California, wait, didn't California 
try to do it, and then the voters reversed it, did they not? Exactly, but that's oh, okay. so shocking to okay. me. The voters? The voters reversed yeah, on ballot it. Talk by that. Yeah. But yes, they did it, and it was, it was, I think it was class action lawsuits, and it was like the Supreme Court of the state of California that ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, not the companies. But the companies got their revenge, and what surprises me is that other legislatures have not taken up this cause. So, but the but the answer to Marjorie's question is, don't patronize. Don't them. use them. Is that right? And then, and for or those who uh, a place like I know that Pagu in Central Square, Cambridge, was doing its own deliveries. They were hiring their own delivery services, and I think what you want to hope for is that one of your favorite restaurants that is doing takeout and delivery has been able to use a local service or their own delivery people, as restaurants have tried to do, to avoid these commissions they have to pay. Now, I know from a piece I did a long time ago about how gouged these restaurants are, that it's still a big financial challenge and personnel headache to line up your own delivery people. It's not easy. I'm so glad you said this. I've been ordering a lot of food from this place called Bountiful Kitchen in Somerville. They don't have a restaurant. Mm -hmm. They just make fabulous food there and then deliver it to your house. They do exactly Mm -hmm. what you do is they use their own delivery people, including some of the people who are cooking, by the way. There should be a story in the Globe or Boston Magazine or something highlighting what those places are where if you need delivery, because you can't go out for whatever reason, you're not screwing both the workers and the restaurant. So... I never heard of that. Yeah, it's great. It's it's great. Oh, I agree. Or eater.boston.com, which did that fabulous community fridge piece. But what it also should should do is talk to some of the owners about how difficult it is and time-consuming to make sure that you've got the people to do it and that they don't just strand you at the end. Yeah. It's so much better a deal for everybody. It's yeah. just like yet another headache that restaurant owners might not be able to take on. We're talking to Corby so, Comer. Corby Comer, um, I, I don't even know who did this story. Maybe you can tell me, but it is a really upsetting, comprehensive story. Washington about, Post. Was it the Washington Post? Mm-hmm. Thank you. I couldn't see where it came from. was a um, story about people uh, driving up in Mercedes-Benz, who I guess they once had enough money to buy a Mercedes-Benz, but now they're at food banks about Houston, how they opened up a stadium um, at 8 o'clock in the morning, right before Thanksgiving, and people were lined up starting at 1 in the morning, seven hours early, and they ran out of food and had to get more. They served, as it was, 7,160 cars uh, full of people in desperate straits. And lots of them talked about how they'd never, ever been in this situation before until the pandemic. Um, what do you make of it? Uh, first of all, this is an example where print, Still has advantages because the Washington Post ran this on their Sunday cover, and it was a full half-page picture of just cars viewed from above, snaking around in the Thanksgiving line, trying to get food. At, it was the Sunday before Thanksgiving where Houston was doing this big event. You know, they started lining up at one in the morning. Um, for like an 8 a.m. opening in the Houston Food Bank, which I did not know is the country's largest food bank, opened early, and they started putting food boxes in that had like cranberry sauce and stuffing mix and things that families were just trying to use not only to celebrate Thanksgiving but to get through the week. 
So I think that all of us were shocked in midway into the lockdown, say May or June, there was a piece, and I think it was a, either Southern California or a St. Louis miles long line of cars waiting at food banks because the safe way these food banks have been delivering food is in trunks. So the, <clears throat> the cars pull up and they open the trunks. But to know the extent of the need in Houston and that really it's mostly doubled the amount of need and the amount of food insecurity, which means that families don't really know if from week to week whether they will have enough to eat. And then the statistics in this piece about the number of people who are hungry or can't be sure of how they can feed their families um, from week to week, and especially the, it's I think, 28% of African-American families in this country are food insecure, are not sure of how they can feed their families. This this problem with the rising stock market, with our optimism that a deal is going to be worked out, we lose track of the sheer numbers of hunger. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's just, really is so, you know, by the way, when I'm like reading the story, I was as impressed as you too. I mean, everybody knew. The reason this piece is so great, and I agree, print helps here is because it makes it so real. It's not just that one photograph. They yeah. have a ton of these of incredibly powerful photographs of mothers and young children, couples. The guy who worked at that stadium for a couple of decades, I think. Yeah. It was a cook at the stadium who was there with his 80, he's 58, I think, with his 80-year-old mother. I mean, it is it is heartbreaking. And, it is totally... and there was a piece recently about volunteers at food banks talking about how... Um, and, and one woman who ran a food bank said, when I was younger and I had small children, I needed food banks to survive. Now my kids have grown and they can support themselves, but I see this need. And so that, that need has absolutely not vanished. One of the things that Kamala Harris uh, said was, when I was growing up, my working mother relied on SNAP mm-hmm. and food assistance. And now I, oh no, it was near a tandem. And now oh. I am honored to be heading the Office of Management and Budget because I will be able to help approve the budgets for the federal food mm-hmm. assistance programs, which are you know, more needed than ever. And in a mysteriously good thing, good thing the Trump administration did, uh, they extended the waivers on restrictions for school food for families to be able to sign up entire families, not just the eligible school child. So we hope that Neera Tandon, who's going over from the Liberal Center for American Progress in Washington to head OMB, is going to make sure that those kind of waivers uh, stay in place. If she's confirmed. If she's confirmed, that's right. If she is confirmed. Right. No, I mean, but she's, she's the one they're targeting. Right. And it's from Bedford, Massachusetts, by the way, we should so, say. So, Corby, we are almost out of time here, but before you go, I know the Trump administration is trying to do a lot of things before they leave on January 20th, but I don't get why they are hot to trot to put more fat, more salt, more starchy vegetables, and less fruit in the lunches of school children across America um, when we already have a obesity problem among children in America. I don't I get is this. just call it a bad dream you can't wake up from. Uh, which is to say that in 2018, very soon after election, the administration oh, and yeah. the U.S. Remember, remember Sonny tr- 
Purdue, the yes. very large mm-hmm. guy who's the head of USDA, saying proudly, pointing <laughs> to his guy. launch, chocolate milk made me what I am today, <laughs> and I am not going to deprive these children of their chocolate milk. So 1% chocolate milk is back. The problem isn't the fat, it's all the sugar in chocolate milk. And so is uh, higher salt and lower whole wheat and less fruit. Because what they listen to is these uh, right-wing food companies that were getting the big contracts for schools saying it's a big pain for us to retool our products so there's more whole wheat in it. But you know what? As soon as the uh, Michelle Obama administration required them to do it, they did it. Industry adapts on a dime if they're required to or if consumer demand requires them to. I have no idea why. But this is like one of many things we're reading about, that as they go out the door, they're trying to leave scorched earth. And so with this, it's not just an executive order that Biden can reverse on day two. It is changing rules. And so these rules would take months more to change if they are approved at the end of December, beginning of January, because the review period ends at, uh, right before Christmas. If they are able to get it passed, before January 20th, it will not only take months more to submit new rules for public comment and then get them passed, but the schools will have put in their orders for months in advance. And so it might screw up meals for an entire year. Sounds good, Corby. This is one of these days where a lot of us hope that hell actually exists. Hey, Corby, it's great to talk to you. Thank you. As always. Corby Kummer joins us every week. He's the executive director of the Food and Society Policy Program at the Aspen Institute, a senior editor at The Atlantic, and a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy. Thanks again, Corby. Coming up, this great new podcast looks at how keeping a secret blacklist of cops could also be keeping justice out of reach for everybody, police officers included. That conversation is next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She's Marjorie Egan. Across the country, prosecutors keep lists of police officers who have a history of misconduct or untruthfulness, a history that could disqualify them from testifying in court or at least compromise their credibility. In New Hampshire, that list is called the Lori List. While it was intended to make the criminal justice system more just, and often does, could it occasionally be compromising justice instead? The history of the list and the current legal battle to make it public is the focus of New Hampshire Public Radio's great new podcast. It's called Document. Season one is a three-part series called The List. We're joined by New Hampshire Public Radio's Jason Moon. He's the host of The List. You'll probably also know him as the host of the Bear Brook podcast. Jason, congratulations. Great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much, Jason. I'm obsessed with this stuff, so it was great to listen <laughs> to your podcast. I <laughs> learned you. so much. So tell us, um, this started with a uh, relentless reporter, Nancy West, looking into um, police unions. Tell us how it began. Yeah, I, I love the way that this story starts. Um, Nancy West used to write for the the Union Leader newspaper, the largest newspaper in New Hampshire, and in the early aughts, um, she got a tip about um, the kind of 
uh, spat between uh, two police unions. Um, there, there used to be two state police agencies in New Hampshire, the state police and the highway patrol, and they each had their own union. And apparently um, they did not get along. And there was a long, um, rather petty, if I may say so, um, list of, uh, you know, the back and forth between the, the two groups. And it ultimately led to a lawsuit um, one group had uh, created a website that uh, the other union claimed was impersonating them. Anyways, in the midst of this legal back and forth, uh, one side um, made an allegation that, well, one of the one of the state troopers in the other union, well, he's on the lorry list, so he shouldn't be able to testify uh, if the case went to trial. And and Nancy West, despite having been a reporter in New Hampshire for many years and covering the criminal justice system, she never heard that term before. And so she got curious about, well, wait, what is what is this thing, the lorry list, or what does it mean to have a lorry issue such that, you know, it could disqualify someone, a state trooper, from being able to testify at a trial? And and so that was kind of the just initial, you know, um, uh, inkling that got got her interested in this story, and and from there she you know went on to learn that for years at that point already um, there has been this list in New Hampshire of police officers with credibility issues, you know things in their past that might need to be turned over to um, a, de- a criminal defendant um, to be you know to be potentially used to undermine that officer's testimony in, in a criminal trial, and it was just kind of surprising that no one really in the public knew about the list. Um, really, no one outside the, the criminal justice system at that point even knew it existed. You know, before you tell us what the, the where this came from and the so-called Brady list, which is what it's often called based upon a mm-hmm. Supreme Court case, one of the things I found to be amazing when you're talking about how no one knew about this, how was it, there's so many former prosecutors that become defense attorneys, how come there weren't former prosecutors who did know about the list uh, who became defense attorneys in New Hampshire, and you have some great ones that you uh, talk about and talk to in your story, who themselves didn't disclose uh, the existence of this thing. Mm. You know, that's, it's quite possible that, that they, they did and that there were former prosecutors who were defense attorneys, but I think what's happened over the years is that the Lori list has become increasingly a matter of of public interest um Mm -hmm. whereas before it might have just been viewed as this kind of obscure you know technical legal system that was really just about you know does a prosecutor have to turn over a name to a criminal defense attorney and and it's all just about you know kind of what happens in the courtroom i think what's happened over the years is is the kind of broader cultural shift towards the public having of just a more skeptical view of of police and policing mm-hmm. and and the and the way that uh, these systems work i think as people found out that well wait there's a list of you know police officers in my state uh, you know uh, who have who have credibility issues um that's kind of interesting and i think that that's just kind of steadily grown um over the years you know to the point where uh, finally a couple of years ago the, you know the local chapter of the uh, American Civil Liberties Union is now suing to make it public, and so I think we're, we've just kind of seen that that growing public interest finally reach a uh, you know a critical point just in the last couple of years. 
And by the way, the reason they're suing to make it public is because I believe you say that the Supreme Court case saying that the prosecutors have to turn over this information is if they deem it, quote, relevant uh, uh, to the issue before the court. And obviously relevance is in the eye of the beholder slash prosecutor. And that's left a lot of ambiguity. But before we move ahead, Jason, you should say uh, Lori, as in L-A-U-R-I-E, was the name of a defendant in a murder case. And how did this issue arise uh, uh, after he was convicted? Right. So um, the, the list gets its name from, as you say, Carl Lori, who was uh, tried for murder um, in New Hampshire in the early 90s. And um, he was initially convicted, um, and, and his case really centered around um, a, an argument. His, his defense was basically that, you know, he, he confessed, but his defense was that his confession was coerced and that the local police department who was <clears throat> investigating um, did an improper uh, investigation. Uh, he lost, he was convicted, and then uh, afterwards his defense attorney learned that one of the police officers who had led the investigation uh, into into the murder had a really long and frankly quite troubling history of misconduct, uh, untruthfulness, and you know he some of his testimony was key in the case. But because Carl Laurie and his defense attorney did not know about that until after the conviction, you know they weren't able to bring that up at trial to make an argument to the jury that you know you shouldn't just take what this officer says as gospel because here are these other examples of, of when he's, you know, you know, not told the truth. And so they appealed on that basis and, and they won. And then the state Supreme court overturned his conviction and the Lori list was sort of created in the aftermath of that by uh, prosecutors in New Hampshire, you know, as a way to try to prevent that from happening again. So County attorneys started keeping these lists of, of every officer who, who had something like that in their past, basically as a way to just remember, to keep track, so that they didn't sort of unintentionally forget or not know that an officer had these issues and then have a conviction overturned. And <clears throat> so that was kind of the, the original uh, purpose of, of the Lori list. And, and still, it's sort of their official purpose today. But as I said, they the lists themselves have really just taken on all this extra meaning over the years as people have gotten more interested in in uh, in police and policing and sure. and really frankly the fact that there's not anything else in the in the state for the public to look at in terms of you know there's no uh, you know public database out there of every time every instance of police misconduct in New Hampshire you know the Lori list is kind of the only thing we have that's even mm-hmm. close to that and it's not publicly available you can't just go see who's on it. Right. It's a secret, basically, to, to, to most exactly. people. We're talking to Jason Moon from New Hampshire Public Radio. He's hosted the list that we're talking about. So when, correct me if I'm wrong, but when I was listening to the podcast, Steve Laro is the, is the cop in question here who was, on the, who, who, uh, was involved right. in this, uh, in this Lori uh, murder. So f- from what I recall, he came from Massachusetts. He got fired in Massachusetts, right? He was a cop in Massachusetts. He had a troubled right. a list that was three inches thick choking, threatening, excessive force, all these kinds of things. And so he gets hired in Franklin, New Hampshire, after having been fired in Massachusetts. Did the cops in Franklin not know he had these problems in Massachusetts? Or what was the deal there? 
You know, that is a great question and, and uh, something I would love to answer, but it, it, it exactly goes to the point of why people are interested in the Lori list, because we can't find out. Because police personnel files in New Hampshire, by and large, are shielded from public records requests. So I, you know, I would love to, to make a, a right to know request, uh, you know, a, a formal FOIA request of the, the, the Franklin Police Department and, and figure out, you know, what they knew when they were hiring this guy. But I can't get those as a reporter in New Hampshire, as a member of the public. We just can't look at that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, again, that's another reason why people look to the list, because it's, it's kind of the only thing that's out there that we that we know is there, but we can't get a, you know, get a look at you know, there's, uh, Jason, there's so many layers of your uh, storytelling is when you said a minute ago, the prosecutors keep the list. Well, that's sort of true, according to your reporting, because in many cases, the prosecutors don't even know who's on these lists. They're controlled by police chiefs. And I was stunned whether the attorney general what sends out a an email or a request to each of the uh, uh, police chiefs in New Hampshire every year asking them if they're complying and keeping the list. And what was it? Fewer than one in five were actually doing it to begin with. So it's sort of like there's this list and rule in place, but it's honored more in the breach than it is in reality. Correct? Yes. And that's, that's one of the main criticisms you'll hear, you know, particularly from defense attorneys about the way this whole system works. It, it, it relies almost entirely on, you know, self-reporting, basically. Yeah. It's police chiefs, uh, by and large, who decide who goes on the list. And then the list itself is maintained by the attorney general's office. But as you said, you know, if a, if a police chief, you know, doesn't say like, yeah, I had an officer do X and that puts him, that should put him on the lorry list. You know, if that chief never comes forward and says that, then that officer doesn't get on the list. And, you know, frankly, that also bothers a lot of um, police officers, especially at the the rank and file level, because they see, you know, an inconsistent uh, application of, of the rules around the lorry list. And, and being on the lorry list can really be damaging to a police officer's career. And they say, well, you know, if I did that same thing over at this other police department, that chief probably wouldn't have put me on the list, but this chief, he's going to. And now that I'm, you know, I'm never going to be able to be promoted. I'm never going to be able to get hired at another station, and and it feels unfair to them in that way. So, it's a it's another example of the kind of um, somewhat arbitrary nature of of the list, who gets on it, why they get on it. it there's a lot of discretion involved. Well, we want to get back in a second to this unfairness issue, and in some cases, the police officers themselves. But before we do, you make the point, because I'm sure people who are in Massachusetts or Rhode Island are listening to you right now, other than just in New Hampshire, saying, well, what's the state here? We all know that Suffolk County DA just put out a list a couple of uh, weeks ago, Rachel Rollins, of uh, the Brady list here, and a lot of people were shocked. And you make the point that nationally it's a patchwork, that uh, they're different standards in different states. Here's a law professor from your podcast, Rachel Moran, talking about how access to police uh, misconduct files is a patchwork, and particularly speaking about Derek Chauvin, who we all met, unfortunately, after uh, he killed uh, George Floyd. Here's Moran. Let's put this, we'll put this in the context of Derek Chauvin for a minute, the officer accused of murdering George Floyd. He has, I believe it's 19 prior complaints over his career 
only two of them were sustained with discipline imposed and therefore those files are accessible. The remaining 17, all we know is complaints were made and that they were closed without discipline. You know, we talked to the head of the Civil Liberties Union here about an hour ago uh, about the police reform passed by the legislature yesterday, and we're not sure whether complaints alone will be uh, publicly accessible here. But the most dramatic part of this, Jason, is you make the point that under pre-existing New Hampshire law, if uh, Chauvin had done to George Floyd what he did uh, in the Midwest in the state of New Hampshire— uh, you wouldn't have had access. You wouldn't have known about his uh, his uh, 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 his troubled past. Correct. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, historically, um, you know, for decades here in New Hampshire, the the lid on um, anything having to do with a police officer's personnel file has been pretty um, total and pretty complete. Um, In fact, I even came across um, uh, an argument made by uh, an attorney for the state just a few years ago who said that uh, New Hampshire uh, provides the most confidentiality for police officers that the Constitution will allow, sort of the maximum secrecy. What a distinction. Now, I I know. So, but, But I will say that has somewhat uh, shifted just in the last couple of years. There's been a couple of important Supreme Court cases in the state of New Hampshire that have pried that lid open a little bit. Now, mm-hmm. the, the Supreme Court no longer sort of categorically exempts police officer personnel files from public records requests, but it, it still remains to be seen sort of how, you know, how much um, access we'll be able to to get. But again, that's just another reason why in the absence of any other, you know, public lens into the personnel history, the performance, the conduct of police officers, people look to the Lori list. You know, even though the Lori list sure. it wasn't designed to be a, you know, a list for to to show the public what police are up to, it's kind of all we have. And so, again, the stakes around it just um, continue to get raised because there's nothing else to look at. Okay, uh, Jason Moon, let's talk a little bit. You, you alluded to them a bit before about the negative side of the Lori list, um, <clears throat> where sometimes there, you, you documented a domestic violence case, a pretty scary one, that was not that where the charges were dropped to protect the cop involved. Tell us about that. Well, Kim, before you tell us, actually, we have sound from this. Uh, oh, we do? Okay, great. Robin uh, uh, Malone, who was a lawyer in the New Hampshire Public Defender's Office, was her client who was facing this uh, domestic violence uh, charge. And here's uh, Malone talking about winning that case. I sat with my client and I watched the victim uh, leave. She was very upset. She was crying. She had a friend with her. Um, it was patently clear to me that she did not want this result. It was confusing for me because I had, for all intents and purposes, as you said, won. Um, but it didn't feel like I won for the right reasons. It felt really dirty. So I got back to the office and everyone's like, what happened? This is so quick. I was like, who's this Lori person? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? Who's, who's Lori? I was like, they said they didn't want to give me the Lori stuff. So they're dropping the case. And one of the senior attorneys was like, Lori's a case. I'm like, oh, <laughs> So what happened there, Jason? Why did this uh, outcome become the outcome? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really important story, and, and it's, it's one you hear a lot from uh, defense attorneys here in New Hampshire. 
Um, and, you know, we don't know for sure because, uh, you know, we weren't able to talk to the prosecutor in that case. But as far as, uh, you know, Robin um, uh, Malone was able to determine, the prosecutor in that case just decided to not go through with it because they didn't want to disclose whatever put that officer on mm-hmm. the lorry list. And so, you know, basically one of the only ways that, um, you know, what is on the list comes out is is during a trial. So if a judge decides that, yes, whatever put this officer on the lorry list is relevant to the defendant in this case, then a, the defense attorney can bring it up in trial. And then at that point, it can become a part of the public record in some cases. And so that just creates an incentive, um, you know, for prosecutors who, you know, often they work closely with these police departments. They have relationships with them. Um, and, and, you know, in some cases they may just decide it's not worth, you know, uh, burning that bridge or jeopardizing that relationship with this police mm-hmm. department or that officer to disclose that lorry issue and, and, you know, have it potentially become part of the public record and, and so the you know the prosecutorial discretion comes in, and they can just decide to to drop the case. But let's let's just underscore <clears throat> what happened here. You had a woman who alleged who is soon to be in fear for her life in a domestic violence case. She gets to court, and they decide they're not going to prosecute. So so she leaves the court. I don't know what happened to her. I hope I hope this this man, whoever it was, uh, didn't do her any harm. But she left the court where they basically said, hey, too bad. I mean, that's just incredible, Jason. Yeah, and and it's another, you know, as, as Robin sort of explains, you know, even though her client was, was the man accused of domestic violence, you know, the outcome did not, it did not sit well with her. You know, she, for all intents and purposes, sort of won the day in court. You know, her client walked away, you know, with with no consequences. But she said it, you know, it didn't feel like the system was sort of working. I don't think so. That's not supposed to happen. I don't think the system worked at all. (laughs) That's just horrible. Well, the moral of the story is don't put dirty cops out on the street doing cases. And then prosecutors aren't put in the position of having to drop something to protect that cop. But the problem is there are, as we know from Boston, there are quite a few cops with dirty histories. So I don't know what you do. Do you have them all sit at the desk? For the rest of their career, and or never go decide out and if there are, you should maybe uh, uh, deal as difficult as it is with possible termination. You know, Jason. You know, you guys, you and your colleagues have really, you know, uh, applied sunshine to this. I'm not quite sure it's a disinfectant yet. The story's mm-hmm. not over. Could you tell us again right. before you go? This is sent back down by your Supreme Court to a lower court it, to determine what. I mean, what exactly will will they be looking at? Yeah, uh, in a recent uh, state Supreme Court ruling, they, they, the, the, the folks, you know, the ACLU and, and some other local media outlets here are suing to make the list public. They, they cleared an important sort of hurdle in, in getting the list public. Um, so um, the, the, the court ruled that, that these, um, the lorry list, the names on the lorry list are not categorically exempt from public view. They, they could be subject to our state's public records law. Now a lower court is going to decide um, if the release of the list would be an invasion of privacy into of the, the officers themselves. And that's another sort of part of the existing public records law that 
uh, it basically it keeps us from making public records requests for like what people checked out from the public library. You know, that mm-hmm. constitutes an invasion of privacy. And so they're going to apply that same test to the Lori list uh, and, and see if it, um, if it, you know, if it amounts to that in the, in the eyes of the court. So the so public has a right to know unless they don't is the current state of affairs. Correct. <laughs> I mean, is that a, that, that, yeah, that's, you know, I, you could, I, I wouldn't argue with that. Yeah. Yeah, again, here's why I'm obsessed with this. I, I think it's hard for people to believe that there are all these police officers running around. And, and again, we always have to say the most cops are good cops, and I'm sure they're pretty disgusted by the bad cops, too. But the way it works now, you have cops running around with long histories of beating people up or of lying or of stealing or of domestic violence in their own households who have the power to arrest people and, and pull you over uh, at, you know, wherever. And we have no idea... Uh, what their history is, and they are still on the job. Jason Moon, thank you so much for for highlighting this. This is a really great great story. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And we'll see what happens in Massachusetts, Jim, because as we know, the uh, police unions are very powerful, and they're very much tied to politicians. Well, I think it depends what's in this bill. We don't know what's in the bill to pass that may be in there. We may have right to it, and as Scalro said, with 24 hours, we don't know, and it's unfortunate they're voting on this damn thing with virtually no time to assess it either, but at least it's a step forward. Anyway, Jason Moore is a senior reporter and producer at New Hampshire Public Radio. He's the host of the Bear Brook Podcast, the Bear Brook Podcast. His latest podcast out of NHPR is Document. Season one is called The List. It's a terrific three-part series about the Lori List, the state's secret blacklist of cops. Jason Moore, thank you again for joining us. Coming up, we're asking you about the end of outdoor dining. Do you think cities and towns could do more to keep restaurant street life alive? This is 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. Again, if you're just tuning in, we were talking to Corby Kummer earlier in the show about the end of outdoor dining. Well, not formally. I'll explain in a minute. And how this means more uncertainty for restaurants and one less option for us. Today, Boston's temporary outdoor dining program wraps up. And that, what this means, it was created to help restaurants expand outdoor dining by giving them access to public spaces like sidewalks, streets, parking lanes. Now uh, that they have to pack up unless they have outdoor space that they themselves own, we can either pack in and risk indoor dining or not eat out at all. To me, at least, it feels like a lose-lose proposition. We're taking your calls asking you if Boston should reconsider. I mentioned the mayor is with us on Friday. We'll talk to him directly about it. Uh, were you planning on eating outside even when it gets really cold, like our neighbors and wherever they are in the Nordic countries? What's your city or town doing about outdoor dining? If you work at a restaurant or own one, what will this, this mean for you? If eating out was how you remained social and did your part to help the local economy, what are you going to do tomorrow uh, if outdoor dining is no longer a, an option? 877-301-8970. You know, I'm trying to keep an open mind about this, and I do want to talk to the mayor about it on Friday, obviously. He's obviously I've got good reasons. Can you figure out any reason to not allow this to happen? I would argue forever, uh, except on horrible snow and ice days. Why not? Well, yeah, because, 
I think there's a great fear that realistic fear that a lot of these restaurants are just going to go under. I mean, we talked about how some of them are hibernating, so-called, for the yeah. winter because they just can't make a, a profit. I mean, I think we'll all survive, Jim, if we can't eat outside. But the issue is, will the restaurants survive if they can't? And I think the answer in many cases is going to be no. And by the way, they're not forced to do this. If they decide, even if the parking lane continues to be available, they can't make it go economically for them, then obviously they, they don't have to. But why take away an option? Just sort of like why is the legislature not giving them an option by capping these usurious fees charged by the delivery service? I, I just don't. I mean, the goal, it seems to me, is to make it easier for small businesses to survive until there's a vaccine. So we want to get your reaction. If you were planning on doing the outdoor dining thing, we, we spoke to people. I don't know if you're here for this. I don't, I don't know if you, know, you were. We're talking about winterization. No, it was yesterday with Jared. Uh, people are planning all kinds of outdoor winter activities, including people like me who hate winter. But they want to change their relationship to the cold for a whole variety of reasons. Personal health, psychological health, helping small businesses. And I just don't get this Boston move, but. Uh, we'll discuss it. 877-301-8970. Is it Raquel? I hope I'm not butchering that in Barnstable. Yes. Yes, Hi, it is. Hi. Um, What's up? Hi. Hi. I hope, I hope that you do talk to the mayor, and I think we need to start a petition because my husband and I went to Mama Maria's in the North End. Mm-hmm. We sat out on the little, uh, little plaza outside. I felt like I was in Europe. It was the most, this past mm-hmm. weekend, it was the most beautiful experience. Europeans do this. The people in Northern Europe where it's cold, they dine out all winter. Why not the rest, let the restaurants be the judge of, of if they can open or not and use outdoor space? We are so hungry for this, and it's so pathetic that Boston doesn't allow us to do this. So please uh, talk to the mayor. Thank I you. am totally, I, every word you said is one with which I agree. If the restaurant doesn't want to do it, they don't have to. If the diner doesn't want to go in the cold, then don't go. But uh, uh, why take away How the option? Thanks, does it Raquel. snow? I mean, we've been lucky. Not I mean, who knows? Anymore. Doesn't snow that much anymore. Hardly snowed at all last winter. So I don't know why the snow plowing is such a big issue. I mean, that am I mistaken? I don't, is that I, I don't not think so. the biggest but again, issue? As I said to Corby on snow days, if you want to require them to dissemble whatever they have in the street or on the sidewalk that they that's public space, then make them do it. But on all the other days, provide it as, and I, you know, I sort of get the sense. Again, I'll repeat as I said yesterday: nobody hates cold more than I do. It's almost like a sport, you know. In some ways, can you endure freezing cold temperatures and do something you like and help a business whose owner, whose employees you like, uh, uh, by braving the cold? And this takes, at least to me, takes away the option. And you know, my expectation, and I was uh-huh. totally wrong, as I said it. I assume this is going to be a permanent thing, so not just through the winter, but post-pandemic, because yeah. it, it, you know, as the first caller said, Raquel, you know, it's not only so European, it's so different and wonderful and I think exciting and you know, helpful. Jim, what? I think that um, one thing you might consider for this Here upcoming winter is maybe not going out in a sport coat. <laughs> expecting to feel warm when it's 25 degrees. I no, know I, was I know you have a standard look. I, oh, it's not you the look. that? <laughs> What is it Not then? The well, I, I do mean, have one New black Hampshire cashmere jacket that I'm pretty cover proud of. The primary in like a, a okay, the black cashmere jacket that came yeah. out. You had a, you had a scarf on, a swashbuckling. I, I look pretty good. Look, I'd say. All right, but you know, I mean, I'm there in my boots and my parka and my North Face and my hat and my mittens and all that, and there you are, 
freezing to death. Well, we should add to that, as we've told you before. On that same day, we went mm-hmm. to an event where Hillary Clinton, this is 2008, That's was speaking. Correct. Marjorie had boots on, was able to get up the hill and yep. uh, go into the event. I uh, not only had, only had a, j- a jacket on, but had regular <laughs> shoes on, could not get up the hill and had to stand yeah. outside the event. That in we New had Hampshire. been instructed to cover by our in bosses. In February. Yeah. Oh, there's like five feet of snow. Yeah. Okay, Drew and Natick. What do you Hello, think, Drew? Drew? How are you? Hey, hey there. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for innovation during these challenges. I agree. To perhaps break up some of the bureaucratic processes and try some pilots if restaurants want to try things. Maybe we could project a movie on the side of a building and have a drive-in movie. Maybe there's opportunity to bring in people donating uh, outdoor heaters, for example. Yeah. Maybe there's an opportunity for restaurants to be also package stores during these times to sell alcohol uh, um, in that manner just to generate some new revenue. What do you guys think? Uh, listen, creativity is the key to this thing. You know, they did, I don't think you can sell like bottles of alcohol, but they are allowing restaurants. Here take out cocktails. Take out cocktails, which yeah. you know is not a huge thing, but it's something, and they make a little more profit on that kind of stuff. I'm with you. Every creative thing they can do, and those creative things that make things more attractive, not just survivable, in my opinion, should stay in place. So, Drew, I'm with you 100%. Thanks for the call. So, Robert is concerned that we might have another winter like 2015, and then we'll all be screwed. That's true, Robert. We will all be screwed. On the other hand, Paul emails and says it's 65 degrees out right now. It is? Is it 65 degrees? It is 60 something, yeah. Well, he's on his deck having a Reuben on Rye and a beer, wearing shorts and a t shirt. So, who's <laughs> so the, what's the name go. of the first uh, emailer? What was the. Robert is concerned about another horrible 2015. I don't understand that either. So, if it's a horrible 2015, you know what you do? You don't you open do, your restaurant for that week. And you don't go to the restaurant for that week. It's sort of like the prior caller said, give them as many creative options to stay in business. And we just might take them up on it. I, I, you know, I'm really um, confused. Maureen, well, you're always confused, Jim. Maureen, you're in Dover. And I know you're thinking that. So I figured why not say it. Maureen, I didn't say a word. I didn't say Maureen, a word, Maureen, welcome. Hi. Hi. How are you? We're good. Um, so anybody who's been to a ski resort knows that it is perfectly acceptable to sit outside in the freezing cold and have lunch. Mm. You just dress for it. You prepare yourself. There's nothing wrong with it. And I think this is an opportunity to increase sales of fleece blankets, heaters, long underwear, all kinds of things. I think they should make this permanent. And I think this is one of the changes that COVID is going to bring that could be really positive for everybody. I hope. You know, Maureen, you just reminded me, we discussed the variation on this about a month ago on the show. And people said some of the things you did, that restaurants that are creative, getting back to the prior caller, could manufacture uh, merchandise, your favorite restaurants that help you get through a cold uh, outdoor meal. And then you take home and you've got some swag from one of your favorite places. So you're another creative thinker, and I think that's exactly what is needed. Maureen, thank you for the call. 877-301-897. Would you eat outdoors? I can't remember what you said when we discussed this a month or six weeks ago. Would you eat out, try eating outdoors on a really cold day if there were heaters? And by the way, you know in Cambridge, I think I told you this, Cambridge is subsidizing up to, not subsidizing, paying for up to $250 per heater for up to five heaters for restaurants, that's another thing I know they're hard to get that local that cities and towns could do to help support the small restaurant industry, you know? 
Yeah, they had. I think I mentioned they had electric heaters above the tables at this restaurant. Oh, you did say in Brookline, that, yeah. which is a pretty clever idea. So you can like feel the heat. You know, uh, uh, you know, when you're when you're sitting right at the table. I mean, which which obviously can with the the propane heaters too. But sometimes they're not uh, quite next to you. No, I'm I'm I, I would. I mean, I'm I'm like I told you, I'm big into into uh, winter clothing, Jim. You know, mm. I think those of us who've had dogs. Now you got your kids have got dogs. I'm surprised yeah, you haven't gotten here. your. I know, but but you did have. They might yeah. visit the dogs and the kids sometimes. Yeah. You know, you always have that heavy clothing for the yeah. walking the dogs and. It's pretty amazing. But you know what how? the problem is? I don't understand. I'm totally with you in the callers on this. But you know, during the blizzard of 2015, yep, I would that. go out in a cashmere sport jacket and a <laughs> scarf and sneakers. And for some reason, I wasn't warm. I was freezing. That. Actually, remember that? Remember that? We had Charlie those Baker had been governor for about a minute. Yeah, Do you remember a minute. That? That's right. And you had pictures of these people getting off the commuter like rail, a long march with with the snow up to their thighs. It was unbelievable. I remember walking the dog. Speaking of walking the dog, I live right near a school. You know, and people didn't shovel the whole sidewalks, uh-huh. not because they didn't want to, it because there was so much snow. So mm-hmm. it'd be like an eighteen-inch uh, shovel section. Mm-hmm. You know, you met somebody coming the other way. You either were going to go <laughs> right. butt to butt or chest to chest. <laughs> Try to cross them, and the snowdrifts. I mean, I'm five foot seven. The snowdrifts were, you know, were over my head. I, know, I remember. It was that was unbelievable. It was like Dr. Zhivago to date myself. Yeah, without anyway, what's her name? What was it? Julie Christie. Julie Christie. That oh, was a million my, years ago, Jim. Whatever. Most of our listeners can't remember that movie. Well, look it up. Mark from the road. <laughs> you're next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome, Mark. Hi. Hi. Thank you very much. A uh, long, long, long time listener. Uh, second time caller. Thank you for. Uh, thank I want you. To let you know what their what their uh, yeah, I, I watch you even when there's better things to watch on. Anyway, <laughs> that's a um, hell of a compliment. So, Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. so um, the, the big thing in the suburbs with my friends and I uh, is a garage park. Basically, you clear cars out of the garage, decorate it, throw a couple of heaters in, and you know you get greater airflow, and uh, and everyone's happy. So uh, huh. do the same thing uh, uh, by scaling up all those parking garages in Boston. Throw a couple of heaters in. Maybe a nice area rug, and you're all set. I, listen, I love it. <laughs> Aren't we supposed to have more than one side open, though, Mark? I don't mean to be, you know, raining on your parade or anything, but garages, you've only got three sides open. I mean, you only got one side open, right? Yeah, but you still have more airflow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's just, again, it's, you, you're mitigating the risk. You, you're you're yeah. not able to eliminate the risk, but you mitigate it. You're mitigating you know, it. That is true. Distance, yeah. That is true. The ones I'm like suspicious it. of Thanks, are the igloos. The igloos that they have well, in that makes New York City. Too. Well, they have them but, here. But a I, couple of hotels have mirror restaurants. That's right, on the roof, on one of yeah, these snazzy the roof, hotels. Yeah. I think in the seaport, they have, is it? They, I think so. They have you know some opening, but uh, uh, some people whose judgment I trust in the media, I'm not talking about people I know, uh, or maybe I do know, uh, have said the ventilation is... A bit of an issue. And if we're wrong, You'd by have the way, to if go. someone wants to counter that, please give us a call at 877-301-8970. What's that? You'd have to go with your pod. I mean, you'd have to go with the people you live with or mm-hmm. with your spouse or something like that. Yeah. You couldn't really have anybody next to you. Josh in Cranston, Rhode Island, where they're putting these hospital beds all over the place. How yeah. are things down there, Josh? Hey, Josh. Hi. How are you? Uh, good. Yeah, it's uh, not looking so good down here with the, the COVID-19 pandemic. No. But, um, yeah, we were, those both field hospitals were set up back in the spring, and we were hoping not to have to use them, but it looks like uh, we're having to use them. So, um, it's unfortunate. Yeah. 
Um, so um, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. But thank you. Oh, just, thank uh, you. Wanted to call. Thanks. Um, so my partner and our friends, we, we go to Provincetown a lot in the off-season, and sometimes we go on New Year's Eve. There's a place up there called the Canteen, which has my like favorite outdoor. Yeah, they, they do like an outdoor Christmas bazaar in the back. I know not a lot of places in Boston might not have the space for it, but it's it's awesome. It's like set up like almost like they do in like Germany during the in the, the Christmas season. But there's like they serve hot drinks. There's open fires. Mm-hmm. It's just super comfortable. And we went up there one New Year's Eve where it was like absolutely frigid. Like I've never felt like a cold day like that before. And we were quite comfortable. You got to dress up and everything. But I just thought it was a really cool idea. And um, I think they still do it. I don't think that they've stopped. But if you haven't been there, you should check it out. You know, Josh, uh, you may or may not know if you're a listener, one of my favorite places in Provincetown is the Canteen. And Rob Anderson, who uh, is the co-owner of the Canteen, we talked about this, Margie, with Corby, and then Rob was on TV with me a few weeks later, wrote one of the best pieces at the beginning of the pandemic about being a restaurateur, and I think it was in the Atlantic, but if you Google Rob Anderson and uh, Canteen uh, and Pandemic, he, he wrote as brilliantly about the travails of a restaurant owner, and it is a great place, and I would do that in a second, Josh. Thanks for calling and thanks for uh, letting us know. I've told you about that place. That yes. place is not only is it a beautiful little spot on Commercial Street, but behind is the beach where all the tables are. And I wasn't aware, as the caller was saying, Josh was saying that they stay open and you know in really cold moments and New Year's Eve and that sort of stuff. It is. It's just. It's fabulous. You know, we are, we're almost out of time here, yeah. but quickly, um, Tony from Cambridge. I think you're making a point about football, which is a which is a valid one. Go ahead. Hi, Tony. Yeah. Hi. Uh, um, a perfect model for outdoor dining are the Patriots. You got sixty thousand people <laughs> sitting all for three hours eating box lunches. That is so, brilliant. You know, these restaurants need to open their eyes, and the town officials get off their seat and do something about it. Tony, yeah, you're a, a great genius. Point. That is the best example of them yeah, all. That is a great point. Of course, I remember they're all there was liquored a, up. But I, I remember this is years ago, and there was a really freezing cold game. Mm-hmm. And I remember how people talked about how they spent their most of the game in the in the ladies' room with the, with the yeah. hair dryers, the hand <laughs> dryers going because they were so cold, putting their socks in the hand dryers. But the stadium was full, so there you go. That is a great point. Tony, Thank you so much, for that Tony. Addition. Uh, and thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow we're going to be joined by Sister Helen Prejean. You may remember her. Uh, the movie Dead Man Walking, and that was her book, was about people on death row. She's going to talk about Trump's gruesome execution spree, and she's a really impressive woman. Art Kaplan on the latest coronavirus headlines. And Thomas Wilkins of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. We're very excited to talk to him. We want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murrs, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, Aidan Conley. Our engineers, John the Claw Parker, Miles Smith, and Dave Goldstein run our remote studios. What is on television tonight, Jim Browdy? Well, we're going to start with the police reform measure that was reported out and apparently going to be voted on today on Beacon Hill. Sonia Chang-Diaz, state senator, was on the conference committee. State Representative Russell Holmes has been the longest-time advocate for police reform. We'll see what he thinks about the measure. Uh, from the Cannabis Control Commission, Shailene Title is going to join me on the approval. Marjorie Reddy of yes. Marijuana Home Delivery. We'll there talk about that. Not only great for Marjorie, but also great for <laughs> lower-income people who want to get in the industry who can't don't have all the capital 
to do a store, and Judah Friedlander, who, of course, you know as Frank on 30 Rock, is part of the Boston Comedy Festival. (laughs) They're doing it virtually. He's part of the the, uh, deal. Louis Black is doing a whole bunch of huge comedians. We're going to talk to him about how exactly you pull it off when no one is there to laugh. So they're all with me tonight on Greater Boston. Terrific. Okay, Jim, that sounds really good. Thank you very Thank much you. for showing up today. You did a no, very nice you're job. You didn't show up yesterday. <laughs> I showed up yesterday and today. I'm Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. Thanks again for listening. Please tune in again tomorrow and have a great afternoon.